Lucifer Memes Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Signs and Portals Part 2 Sansa Locked in Ice Live Podcast Featuring Special guest, Maester Mary. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming to Signs and Portals 2, Sansa Locked in Ice, live podcast stream. And I am joined by two very special guests today, uh, Maester Mary, to read the quotes as last week, and also San Rixian. So say hi, Maester Mary. Hello, everyone. I'm super pumped for this episode. Hey, how's everybody going, doing today? Oh, I'm so, smooth, so smooth, so smooth. This is just, <laughs> a, just like a dream. Sorry. <laughs> well, Maester, I'm awake. Maester Mary gave a, a rousing hello and then just stopped. I was waiting for like, I'm from the Up From Under Winterfell YouTube channel and I have a wig. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible at self-promotion, but but great at um, at promoting my costume. This is like one of my favorite things ever. And Sanrixian reminded me to wear it. So yeah. awesome. thankfully, no no wardrobe malfunctions were had. But in any case, uh, Maester Mary, as we mentioned last week, has a couple of cool videos on Bravos. Uh, looks like oh three now. We've got a third one. Yeah. It's yeah, the, the last one is specifically about green seer magic. And I talk a lot about um, actually areas where the veil between the world is thin. So it's pretty on point for um, your series right now as well. A different style, a different take on it, but similar kinds of themes um, about where the influence of magic is and how you find and ferret out kind of the symbols George is using for that kind of stuff. But but in this case, specifically in Bravos. Nice. Yeah, as, as uh, we delved into that a little bit in the Weirwood Goddess series when we followed Arya to Bravos, and we definitely noticed a lot of green seer symbolism lurking about. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, it's the, the great debate is how much of it is purely symbolic parallels and how much of it might be, you know, back-channel magic connections. But uh, we'll leave you to sort that out, Maester Mary. I'm, I'm on it, up to the task. We'll see how many videos it takes. No, that's always the question. That's always the question. Well, uh, and uh, my second guest is, of course, the one and only San Rixian, who is hard at work drawing uh, something. What are you drawing there, San This is a Sansa with purple serpents in her hair. So um, we're doing a special See If I Can Beat the Clock and Paint These episode, right? Cool. Well, you've got, yeah. So what I've done, guys, is uh, I've given San Rixian the script ahead of time. Uh, so she knows approximately like what scenes we'll be doing in what sections. And uh, what we're going to do is we're basically going to leave San Rixian to draw during the section. And then in the section break, we're going to check in and see what kind of masterpiece that she has created. Uh, and then we'll sort of do that every section. And like I said, we're going to follow up at the very end. We'll have a little bit of Q&A discussion, take a few questions. And of course, then Sanri will start drawing cartoons of whatever silly things that we've <laughs> made up during the uh, cast, as usual. Oh, As I have a list want. from last cast, too. Don't worry. Oh, the list is growing. I'm making T-shirts faster than, or at least I'm throwing out ideas 
not yeah. me, but all of us collectively with our with our madness. As I just I'm up to like the twenty. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to weed through the bad ideas and and figure out. Uh, so yeah, let's. Uh, uh, so there, just uh, briefly, I'd like to address the uh, the YouTube shenanigans. There has been some YouTube shenanigans. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably heard about this already. Uh, but basically, YouTube has demonetized my channel, which was a very upsetting email to get. And basically, that means that I can't receive super chats or put ads on any of my videos. And that uh, is kind of a bummer. I was I make uh, most of my income through Patreon, or at least the uh, Song of Ice and Fire income. Uh, but I do had been starting to get a little more from YouTube, and without that monetization, that is a little bit of a blow. Um, and I won't bore you with all the details, but it's a little bit frustrating because they're telling me that I've duplicated content, uh, which I haven't done intentionally. Uh, but they won't. It's weird. In the past, they flag uh, a specific video, and they'll say. You know, this video has a copyrighted song or an image or something. And then you can, you know, you can't monetize that one video and you can fix it and then it's all good. But for some reason, they've demonetized the entire channel and they won't tell me uh, what video it is that's breaking the policy. And I'm, I'm assuming it's some sort of, I don't know, like maybe I played a little bit of a song or something on a live stream one time. I've got no idea what duplication they're talking about. And they, like I said, they, they won't tell me what video it is. So I'm going to write to them. And their normal process is they don't have an appeal that you can do. Um, so I don't really have much hope for my email being answered. Basically, they're telling me in 30 days, I can reapply for monetization as long as I've fixed whatever on my channel uh, is violating the policy. But of course, that's really hard because they're not telling me what video it is that's violating the policy. So right now, it's a little bit of an impasse. Um, and... Hopefully, I'll get it resolved, but I don't want you guys to worry about it too much. Um, that's, like I said, uh, I'm, you know, YouTube is not going to, to stop me by any means. And I'm, uh, you know, working on, I'm looking at Twitch as an option. Uh, maybe I'll get this thing straightened out. But one way or the other, you know, I'm going to keep doing live streams and podcasts, of course. And I would like to right now thank everybody for the huge outs, uh, outpouring of support that I received. I had a bunch of people sign up for Patreon as soon as I posted about it. A lot of people that were saying, you know, uh, I've been listening forever. I've been meaning to sign up and I saw your note. So I signed up today. Even one of my oldest Westeros friends, Duran Durandon, signed up uh, for Patreon. So I just want to thank you guys so much. I was really bummed out for about half a day after I got that email. And then the Patreon thing started rolling in, and I was like, wow, okay, everybody's got my back. So really appreciate that, guys. Um, Bronze Stairies, even a couple of my regular patrons kicked up their donations. Uh, so just thanks so much, every guys, and just know that that's made a big impact for me. And I'll keep you guys updated. Uh, but for today, uh, instead of Super Chats, what we're doing is the paypal.me. And it's very easy. All you have to do is type in mythicalastronomy at paypal.me right in your web address. You don't have to log into PayPal or even have a PayPal. All you do is put in mythicalastronomy at paypal.me right in the, in the browser uh, address field. And then you can uh, send a little mythical astronomy donation if you want. And uh, I will give you a shout out here on the live stream. So it is, and the nice thing about that is that Super Chats, actually YouTube keeps like 25 or 30% of Super Chats, which a lot of people didn't know. Uh, so the paypal.me doesn't have that problem. And the last part of this is that everyone who sent in Super Chats last week, uh, that money uh, has been seized by YouTube. 
apparently. Uh, in the note that they sent me, it says you will not be able to withdraw money from your AdSense account, which is where those Super Chats go. So I don't know if I'll be able to get that eventually if I'm remonetized or not, uh, but it definitely kind of seems messed up and uh, makes me not want to use Super Chats even if I get all of this like squared away in the future. So I probably will continue to use the PayPal.me and I'm looking for a way to integrate it into my little interface or whatever, but won't bore you to tears with all that. We will eventually uh, deal with all that. So... That being said, we are set to do an awesome live stream today, uh, YouTube be damned. And yes, it is some bullshit, uh, but like I said, um, you know, I'm not dwelling on the negative. I'm choosing to focus on the support that y'all are sending me and the awesome material that we want to talk about. So that's what we're doing today. And like I said, I'll keep you updated on Twitter. Um, and if you guys have some suggestions about, you know, what to do, then send me a, maybe like a Twitter DM or something. Um, if you, you know, I'll, I'll look at the chat on the replay, but I probably won't catch it right now. So that being said, I think we are ready to start folks, ready to start. So folks, here we are friends, patrons, YouTube viewers, and podcast listeners, myth heads of all sorts. Welcome to the Sansa at the Erie episode, where we'll be spending most of our time talking about Sansa on her way to the Erie. I know on her way to the Erie. That's right. We, uh, we all want to build snow castles of symbolism together in the godswood at dawn. But before we do that, we need to trace out Sansa's symbolic path that took her there. Because, boy, let me tell you, there is some high-powered mythical astronomy and incorporation of world mythology going on with Sansa as she flees from King's Landing and arrives at the Vale. We will take her there, all the way there, but it's going to require yet another episode, or perhaps even two, to really get into all her scenes at the Eyrie, and then, of course, we need to compare those to Tyrion and Catelyn scenes in the Eyrie from A Game of Thrones, and then bring in a couple of the Winds of Winter uh, Elaine Stone chapters as well. So, lots more material. But before we begin, let me just say that Sansa really is one of my favorite characters, as I said last week. And that's even setting aside Sophie Turner's good looks and charm. We recently actually got a Twitter thread going, uh, where we sort of threw out of some various Sansa moments of awesome, and it went on for like a day and a half. It was really amazing how many there were, because a lot of them are kind of under-the-radar subtle moments that you don't remember. They're not sword fights. Um, but when you go back and start highlighting them, she has all these underrated moments where she stands up to people and asserts her values and stuff, and uh, it was really awesome. So I'm actually kicking around the idea of doing a Between Two Weirwoods panel so we can talk about Sansa the character, because obviously we'll be doing mostly Sansa symbolism today. But this isn't the first time we've talked about Sansa, of course. She played a starring role in Moons of Ice and Fire 3, Waves of Night and Moonblood, where she did amazing Nissa Nissa Fire Moon things at King's Landing. We won't recap all of that here, just a little bit. Uh, but I will say that my personal favorite scene has to be Sansa balling up her moonblood-soaked sheets and shoving them into the fire and filling the room with smoke at the same time that two Azora High Reborn figures, Stannis and Tyrion, were burning things outside the castle and filling the sky with smoke. This entire scene and the ones connected to it all depict Sansa as a fire moon maiden with burning moonblood, culminating with the purple wedding, of course. Then she turns up in the mother of all ice moon symbols, the Eerie, and, spoiler alert, we catch her doing some Night's Queen type of stuff. So you can see why it's important to trace out the path, from Nissa Nissa and Fire Moon symbolism, to Ice Moon and Night's Queen symbolism. 
this series is about portals after all. So we've got to figure out what's between and how she got from one to the other. So without further ado, let me say thanks to Maester Mary from the Up From Under Winterfell YouTube channel for performing the vocal readings from the text. Thanks to San Rixian for live drawing the live podcast. Thanks to Stanley Black for our intro music. And of course, the amazing John Walsh for our flamenco guitar music, which you'll hear in a second. Thanks to the man himself, George R.R. R. Martin, who has enriched all of our lives with his books. And thanks to all of you Mythheads who have joined our Patreon. I'd actually like to take this moment to welcome the return of Sir Brian the Prodigal Stark, the good other, knight of the last house, wielder of the Valerian steel blade Red Song, who has risen harder and stronger as one of the long night's watch. He joins his fellow green zombie watchers, Sharon Ice Eyes, dread ferryman of the north, wielder of the staff of the gods, a weirwood staff banded in Valerian steel. Synxia, frozen fire queen of the summer snows and burner of winter's wick. Antonius the Conspirator, the red right hand of R'hllor, knower of the unknowable, dispenser of final justice, and Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck, the frozen thunderbolt, whose words are, the way must be tried. So that makes five on the zombie watch, and I'm also proud to announce our sixth member, that's right, who is Visenya Ice Eyes, starry jewel queen of the frozen veil of tears. Very topic appropriate. And you'll notice that all of these half-dead, half-dozen have frozen fire-type names, and that's not an accident, of course, because we're looking for a dozen valiant souls to give up their pretend internet lives for the greater good, to rise harder and stronger as zombie brothers and sisters of the Long Night's Watch, because Jon Snow's going to need some backup, am I right? So if you'd like to snag yourself a nickname, early access to the essay versions of the episodes, and most importantly, play a part in driving mythical astronomy onward and upward, then check out our Patreon campaign, which is linked at the top of luciferMeansLightbreaker.com. And like I just said, that's also where you can find the matching text to this podcast. The Sansa Locked in Ice. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of four of our most devout and loyal priests and priestesses of Star Wisdom. Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters and keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. The Venus of Astkik, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones. The Orange Man. And Black-Eyed Lily, the Dark Phoenix. So I mentioned that Sansa's Moonblood scene in King's Landing is one of my favorites for symbolism and comedic effect. And by that I don't mean to make light of it, as it is a very serious scene. Uh, It's an emotional matter for Sansa, as is everything that happens to her in King's Landing while she's being abused by the Lannisters on basically a daily basis. But there is something almost Three Stooges-like about how rapidly the scene goes from bad to worse to much worse as Sansa starts out waking from a nightmare to realize she's experiencing her first menstruation to then cutting out the blood stain in her sheets to simply shoving the entire mattress into the fire in desperation. It's kind of funny in one sense, but at the same time, The desperation and obvious foolishness of trying to burn an entire mattress in a hearth fire underscores the extreme sense of terror and panic that Sansa feels at the thought of being forced to bear Joffrey's children against her will, which is obviously really terrifying. Um, And of course, the symbolism here is absolutely bonkers, and that's the point I want to make. Uh, Sansa is clearly a Nissa Nissa Fire Moon figure, filling the air with smoke and burning her moon blood, and thinking about unpleasant couplings with Solar King Joffrey. That's really why this scene is my favorite, of course. It's the symbolism. 
Uh, if you want the full breakdown on this one, that can be found in the appropriately named Waves of Night and Moonblood episode. At the same time, this more underrated bit of Sansa symbolism gives it a run for its money. It's especially clever because it's not even in a Sansa chapter. It's actually a great example of a sly writing technique that Martin uses to add more symbolism to a given scene, which is that he has other people talk about something elsewhere. So the following is the scene with Arya and Sander at the Inn of the Crossroads, right before they get into a fight with Polliver and Raph the Sweetling and the Tickler. The Mummers have just given Sandor the news that Joffrey was murdered at the Purple Wedding. So much for my brave brothers of the Kingsguard. The Hound gave a snort of contempt. Who killed him? The Impets thought him and his little wife. What wife? I forgot you've been hiding under a rock. The Northern girl, Winterfell's daughter. We heard she killed the king with a spell and afterwards changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind and Cersei means to have his head. That's stupid, Arya thought. Sansa only knows songs, not spells, and she'd never marry the imp. The hound sat on the bench closest to the door. His mouth twitched, but only the burned side. She ought to dip him in wildfire and cook him, or tickle him till the moon turns black. He raised his wine cup and drained it straight away. All right. Thank you, Mary. Uh, What was that about the moon turning black? That was interesting. Uh, I did include that last bit about the moon turning black because, of course, it helps reinforce what's being symbolized here. Sansa, the fire moon maiden, has symbolically changed into a winged bat wolf and flown out of a tower after the sun-darkening ceremony of the Purple Wedding. This is a picture of the fire moon turning into a moon meteor, with the winged bat wolf subbing in for a fire-breathing dragon because that's more suited to Sansa's symbolism. My wonderful friends Isabel Harper and Sandra from the Twitteros would also like me to point out that Sansa's bat wings may reflect her Went heritage via her Tully mother. And for what it's worth, we know that Heron Hall, the seat of House Went, is entirely 100% symbolic of the destruction of the Fire Moon, which is what Sansa's doing or acting out right here as she turns into a bat wolf. So Heron uh, Hall really actually is, I'd have to say, it's one of the most obvious to be honest, as it's basically a huge hunk of scorched and cracked black stone that was burnt by a dragon fire. And we discussed some of Harrenhal's symbolism in Weirwood Goddess 2, It's an Arya Thing, as well as Moons of Ice and Fire 3, Visenya Draconis, if you're curious about that. Although there is more at Harrenhal that we are going to go back for in the future. Now, I'll also point out that the uh, suggestion of Sansa leaping from the tower builds on both the general trope of maidens in the tower, which we see everywhere in A Song of Ice and Fire, such as Lyanna Stark, who died in a tower, and Ashara Dane, who supposedly threw herself from a tower. And it also builds on Sansa's own thoughts of suicide when she contemplated leaping from a king's landing tower amidst the worst of Joffrey's abuse. But this time, in the colorful and rapidly spreading folktale of Sansa's escape from the Purple Wedding, it's a bit different. Instead of a suicidal leap from the tower, it's a flight and a transformation as she turns into a flying batwolf. I probably don't have to tell you that Ashara, Dane, who leapt from the tower, might not be dead either. As we know, she's living in the neck with her true love, Howland Reed, and going by the name Diana. Shout out to Chloe, a.k.a. the Queen of Love and Beauty. Or, I'm sorry, Queen of Love and Boote, I should say. So, the burning moonblood. Yeah, yeah, no, you can get a yeah in for that. Woo! Drink! Hey, Grandpa! Dad, no! 
What are the other lines? <laughs> so the burning moon blood. Uh, oh, I guess I. Uh, yeah. Well, I've actually I've got the Sir Barristan grandfather voice saved for later, so we'll be breaking that out for y'all. Um, anyway, so the the burning moon blood soaked mattress and the legend of Batgirl werewolf Sansa. Like I said, two of my favorite Sansa scenes at King's Landing. And don't worry, we are going to cover Dantos and his morning star melon in a bit. In a bit? Get it? It's a smashing melon joke. Unfortunately for Dantos, the world is a vampire. And that was a smashing pumpkins joke. <laughs> anyway, those two scenes are... Yeah, you can laugh at that. That's acceptable. Uh, anyway, these two scenes are amusing. Uh, probably more amusing than my jokes. But by far the most important Fire Moon action that Sansa does at King's Landing is her part in the Purple Wedding. As we've discussed before, the Purple Wedding is a detailed description of the hiding of the face of the sun during the long night. According to theory, the sun was hidden by clouds of ash, smoke, and debris that came from the moon meteor impacts, something which we can see as Nissanissa Moon having her revenge on her murderous husband, Azor Ahai, the Solar King. Sansa is playing the Nissanissa role here, with Joffrey playing the role of her abusive Solar King husband, even though technically he broke off the betrothal to Sansa to marry Marjorie, That's okay. Uh, Joffrey's murder has his bright solar face turning dark purple as he suffocates due to the effects of the poison known as the Strangler. And that, of course, was hidden in Sansa's symbolically redonkulous silver hairnet. Ergo, we can see this as just the sort of lunar revenge that I was speaking of, where an abused Nissa Nissa figure has her revenge on her abuser. The drama isn't always framed this way, but I have been suggesting that Nissa Nissa was an unwilling victim from the start, essentially, so it's interesting to see this very abusive and cruel version of the Solar King getting killed specifically for his cruelty, as the Tyrell's motivation to kill Joffrey was indeed to protect Marjorie from his abuse and maneuver her to marry Tommen instead, who was not an abuser and could be molded more to their liking. Now, as for that hairnet, it's what makes the mythical astronomy of the Purple Wedding uber clear. The poison known as the Strangler comes in the form of dark purple crystals, as we see in Maester Crescent's A Clash of, King prologues, uh, Clash of Kings prologue chapter. And I assume that's why they used a black amethyst hairnet to disguise it, since black amethysts are also very dark purple. Oddly, both the leaf that the Strangler is made from and the black amethyst that it is disguised amongst are from a shy which can only make us think of dragons, fire magic, greasy black stone, Azor High, and of course, the Amethyst Empress, who may have been Nissa Nissa herself. And then we notice that in this very scene, Sansa is wearing the Amethyst from Ashai while acting out Nissa Nissa's revenge at Joffrey's wedding. And so I would take that as a strong piece of evidence that Nissa Nissa was the Amethyst Empress and that she comes from Ashai, which in turn implies that Ashai was indeed the capital of the Great Empire of the Dawn, as I suggested oh so long ago, back in April of 2015, and I have added the receipts to the script. There's a hyperlink. I've got receipts, y'all. It's also worth noting that those amethysts were, quote, so dark they drank the moonlight, which is a keyword phrase that we know well. It calls out to the greasy black stone of Ashai, which seems to drink the light, as well as Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper, whose dark steel also drinks the sun. And that's more ties to Ashai dragons and magic swords. And, of course, moon meteor symbols. Of course, moon meteors. Those moon meteors drank the fire of the sun when the moon cracked open, which is what all of this light and sun drinking is about. So remember that, just like Hall or the Dragon Pit at King's Landing, a shy and the shadow that hangs over it are a model for the destroyed and blackened fire moon. 
That's where the poison that darkened the sun came from, essentially, the fallout of the breaking of the fire moon. And so the poison that kills Joffrey the Sun King comes from a shy, which is like a broken fire moon. Okay, you guys get it. So the hairnet itself uh, has absolutely sparkling mythical astronomy symbolism, as Maester Mary will read for us. It was a hairnet of fine spun silver, the strands so thin and delicate that the net seemed to weigh no more than a breath of air when Sansa took it in her fingers. Small gems were set wherever two strands crossed, so dark they drank the moonlight. So these uh, silver strands in the hairnet are essentially like the lattice of stars and galaxies, with the gems at the crossing points playing the role of stars. And I've caught Martin using this lattice word to refer to the cosmic net of stars a few times. And of course, these ideas originate in the Vedic mythology uh, known as, or the bit of Vedic mythology known as Indra's net. This is a really cool thing. So let me quote Francis Cook's description of it from his 1977 book entitled Hua Yen Buddhism, The Jewel Net of Indra. Far away in the heavenly abode of the great god Indra, there is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning artificer in such a manner that it stretches out infinitely in all directions. In accordance with the extravagant tastes of the deities, the artificer has hung a single glittering jewel in each eye of the net. And since the net itself is infinite in its dimension, the jewels are infinite in number. There hang the jewels, glittering like stars in the first magnitude, a wonderful sight to behold. If we now arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection and look closely at it, we will discover that in its polished surface there are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel is also reflecting all the other jewels, so that there is an infinite reflecting process occurring. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> you see why I wanted to read that one. Uh, that's just friggin' really awesome, just on its own merits. Uh, but of course, this is something that I think uh, Sansa's hairnet is tying into really hard. So, you know, I always talk about how George's symbolism is fractal. And this uh, this idea of fractal universe is what Indra's net is essentially portraying. So I just thought that was kind of a cool thing for George to tap into. Um, but you can really see the specific callouts to Indra's net in Sansa's hairnet here, with the eye jewel stars at the crossing points of the lattice. Of course, stars are usually symbolized by diamonds because they're bright and glittery. So using a light drinking gem in the lattice instead simply implies the idea of dark stars, black hole moons, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's not news to us. We've been saying that the exploding moon sun conjunction effectively becomes a dark star since. Oh, let's see. I think it was uh, Bloodstone Compendium number two. Uh, yes. In fact, the uh, the earlier version of that essay back on Westeros.org uh, was called uh, Black Hole Moon, for what it's worth. Uh, yes. Hashtag. Can we, voice. Can we Still, sing that? <laughs> Black Hole Moon. Won't you, Tim? Yeah, we definitely can. Um, yes. I've made uh, copious Soundgarden references in that, in that essay. Still, uh, when a red-headed moon maiden wears an Indra's net full of dark stars, which poison and darken the solar king, 
That's essentially the basic mythical astronomy theory in action, and it's an awfully detailed version of it. It's kind of creating this idea that the very cosmic web of the universe is unraveling to kill the sun for his sin, which is a great way of seeing the long night, in my opinion. And also ties into the whole idea that it was Azor Ahai, the Prometheus character who actually caused all of this. So the final layer of the hairnet symbolism comes from the ghost of High Heart when she sees a dream vision of Sansa at the Purple Wedding. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs, and later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. The Moon Maiden has a nest of poisonous snakes in her kissed-by-fire hair, and we know what that means. Fiery moon dragons! Ah, yes. Uh, Dark stars coming out of the cosmic web to rain on your parade. We've seen a lot of poison, snake bite, and toxic symbolism applied to the meteor symbols. Think of the oily black stone of Yin in Ashai, which seems to be cursed, or Oberyn's sun spear, which was tipped with oily black poison. All in all, Sansa's starry Medusa hairnet is some of the most detailed mythical astronomy found anywhere, and it squarely pegs Sansa as a fire moon, Nissa Nissa person at King's Landing, as she helps kill the sun. Kind of is what it is. And look, the ghost of High Heart is speaking of Sansa in a castle made of snow. Why, that must be an allusion to the Eerie, of course, and to her snow castle scene there, with Peter as the giant. And it's generally taken as foreshadowing of Sansa serving up Peter some well-deserved and long-awaited Stark justice. It's basically the mythical astronomy story of Sansa's transition from King's Landing to the Eerie also. First, she's a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs, and later... She's slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. Now, I've mentioned this before, and it's really simple to understand with everything that we've learned already. At least I hope it is. So to put it simply, Sansa is basically the female version of the dragon locked in ice. She starts out as a fire moon, Nissa Nissa person, then does a ton of moon combustion and moon blood stuff at King's Landing, kills the Sun King, and then flies away and turns into a stone, a landstone. The name change works on a lot of levels and conveys the idea that Sansa's transforming as she leaves King's Landing and goes to the Vale, only she's turning into a stone instead of a werewolf Batgirl this time. She's transforming into a stone, guys. A moon meteor stone, it would be, as Sansa represents the transition from a whole intact fire moon into a flying fire moon meteor dragon. She darkens her hair to chestnut brown, but once she refers to it as Elaine's burnt brown, which works together with her stone moniker to imply her as a former piece of burnt fire moon, a burnt stone. The fiery moon meteor lands then, or it's the, um, I should say that then the fiery moon meteor lands inside an ice moon symbol, which is the veil, just as the dragon locked in ice meteor always does. And presto, it's a Sansa locked in ice. Old snow cloaked the courtyard, and icicles hung down like crystal spears from the terraces and towers. The Erie was built of fine white stone, and winter's mantle made it whiter still. So beautiful, Elaine thought. So impregnable. She could not love this place, no matter how she tried. Even before the guards and the serving men had made their descent, the castle had seemed as empty as a tomb, and more so when Peter Baelish was away. No one sang up there, not since Marillion. No one ever laughed too loud. Even the gods were silent. 
The eerie boasted a sept, but no septin, a god's wood, but no heart tree. No prayers are answered here, she often thought, though some days she felt so lonely she had to try. Only the wind answered her, sighing endlessly around the seven slim white towers and rattling the moon door every time it gusted. It will be even worse in winter, she knew. This winter will, in winter, this will be a cold white prison. Dun, dun, dun. That was from A Feast for Crows, and as you can see, the Eerie has the standard prison symbolism of all Ice Moon locations, such as White Harbor with its wolf's den, Winterfell with its crypts, and its labyrinthined uh, prison symbolism, and of course the wall with its cold ice cells, and the idea of the Night's Watch as kind of prisoners at the wall, which they are. The Eerie uh, also has those ice cells, of course, and they are put to good use as well. And to the same effect, you probably also noticed the Eerie seeming as empty as a tomb. It's a tomb for the Fire Moon Meteor. Whether that be incarnated as a dark Azor High reborn person like John, or a transformed Nissa Nissa figure like Sansa here. Marillion and Tyrion, both of whom come to the Eerie, show us male Azor High figures getting locked in the icy prison tomb of the Eerie. They're both put in the sky cells, if you recall, where the bloody blue calls to them. And uh, the general astronomy is the same, whether it's male or female. It's a piece of fire moon being locked in the ice. In terms of the Eerie having no gods and being empty, well, when it gets filled up, it gets filled with a dead goddess, the dead fire moon goddess, so to speak. Sansa isn't exactly, uh, she isn't actually dead, of course, but in a way, she is. Because she temporarily kills her Sansa Stark identity and becomes Elaine Stone, quote, inside and out, as she repeats to herself several times. And then there's this line, which comes as Sansa is sailing to the fingers on the way to the Vale. The wind ran salty fingers through her hair, and Sansa shivered. Even this close to shore, the rolling of the ship made her tummy queasy. She desperately needed a bath and a change of clothes. I must look as haggard as a corpse and smell of vomit. Lord Peter came up beside her, cheerful as ever. Good morrow. The salt air is bracing, don't you think? It always sharpens my appetite. He put a sympathetic arm around her shoulders. Are you quite well? You look so pale. First of all, fuck Peter, the smarmy little peckerwood. Secondly, yeah, like, not, what was that about? I mean, what a dick, you know? He's like, oh, you... It's bracing, isn't it? Yeah, it just sharpens my appetite. Oh, you look like you're gonna you look like you're gonna hurl there. I'm gonna eat some clams in front of you, or something disgusting. Equally, he's Anyways. just being the worst. He's being the worst. He is the worst. So, uh, in any case, get a job. Sansa, oh no, you can we can keep ripping on Peter as long as you want. Oh, I just wanted to say, get a job for Chloe. Yeah, there you go. He okay. definitely needs to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, second of all, uh, Sansa is a pale corpse here. That was the point. She's a fire moon turned to a stone, a symbolically slain moon goddess, and she's headed for an icy prison tomb, and she's a corpse. If you're thinking of the proper name for Night's Queen, which is the Corpse Queen, then you're very smart. Good job. Sansa will indeed be performing Night's Queen symbolism at the Eerie, as I mentioned, and Elaine is actually an Ice Queen named too. It's similar to Alanis Harlaw, Theon's mother, who has both Corpse symbolism and Night's Queen symbolism, as well as Alisande Targaryen, whom we established as an Ice Queen figure in the last episode, or actually two episodes ago, uh, Ice Moon Apocalypse. And Elaine is also just kind of a flip-flop of the syllables in Lyanna, 
all lane, Lee, Anna. So there you go. And as someone on Westeros.org pointed out oh so long ago, Arya takes up the name Cat in Bravos while Sansa becomes Elaine. And if you combine Arya and Sansa's fake names, you get Cat Elaine, which is like Catalin. Catalin, Catalin. It's wordplay. So Elaine is an Ice Moon Queen name. And it combined with Stone, Sansa's new name Elaine Stone, effectively translates to Ice Moon Meteor Queen. And as I said, she does indeed do Night's Queen stuff in a few scenes while at the Eyrie. I should really stop saying, as I said so much. It's one of those crutches. It's like so hard not to use that. But I'm constantly referring to stuff that I've said previously. And yeah, I don't know. That's definitely not on the drinking game list. Anyways, uh, she does indeed do Night's Queen stuff. So this is highly suggestive, guys. It implies that Nissa Nissa, after being killed by Azor High somehow became the Night's King, Night King's Corpse Queen, whom we call Night's Queen. Now, that's a huge and exciting topic, and we're going to be delving into that more as we go along. But I wanted to introduce it here because it's basically one of the central messages that emerges when you study the symbolism of Sansa at the Eyrie. She's unquestionably a Fire Moon Queen in King's Landing, doing Nissa Nissa things. And then she, well, she, she turns into a Night's Queen figure when she goes to the uh, Ice Moon place, the Eyrie. And if Night's King was Azor High himself, as I've been suggesting, then uh, this might become a weird story about Azor High perhaps trying to raise his lost Nissa Nissa from the dead, or perhaps Nissa Nissa finding a way to escape death and return to Azor High, or something else very dark and strange like that. So, tin for the way, folks. Uh, yes, since making this discovery, I have noticed that there are Many other Nissa Nissa Fire Moon Maidens who turn into icy Night's Queen figures, or at least there's a couple. Uh, or said another way, that some Fire Moon people become locked in the ice and turn icy. That's really all that means. Now, they don't all do that, and I assume that's because not all the Fire Moon meteors landed in the ice moon. Some of them hit the earth and the ocean and stuff like that. Uh, but some of those moon meteors do hit the ice. And so, for example, we see Cersei being imprisoned in an ice moon place, which is the Sept of Baelor. And, uh, yeah, that is the same thing as Sansa going to the Eyrie. That's literally a Fire Moon Queen being locked in an ice moon prison. So, there it is. Sansa, however, is where I first noticed the pattern. And uh, so, we're going to talk about some of those other characters in due time, but for now, we're basically just laying out the broad strokes of Sansa's arc so we can dive into her chapters at the Eyrie and know what to look for. So, there are two chapters leading up to her arrival at the Eyrie. At first, I thought I would be able to cover both of those chapters in, like, one little section on the way to the Snow Castle chapter, but oh no. These two chapters are, of course, loaded with symbolism. And by the time I was finished analyzing them and writing about them and trimming away whatever I could, the episode was pretty much done. So part of that is just because a lot happens in those chapters, and part of it is that Sansa has some really cool references to external world mythology, and several of them are touched on in these chapters. Okay, it's time for some honoring of the Patreon names and flamenco guitar. Escape from King's Landing. This section is sponsored by three of our newest patrons. Han Never Solo, The Scorpion Mind. Cyber Pincher of the Weirwood Net and Guardian of the Celestial Stallion and Horned Lord. Durin Durandin, the Redfish Bluefish, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Pisces, 
whose eyes are ruby and sapphire, and whose sword is pale fire, and Westeros of the Cosmic Mill, the unchained uncle, host of bards, and priest of the sacred order of the Black Hand. So there were some new Patreon names, and of course you might recognize Westeros of the Cosmic Mill, the unchained uncle, as Unchained or Ross Miller on Twitter, one of our Twitteros crew, and as I mentioned, Dern Durnden is uh, one of my oldest friends from Westeros.org who collaborated strongly on the whole Great Empire of the Dawn theory. He's the one that spotted the ghosts with swords of pale fire and Valerian hair in Danny's dream and connected that to the gemstones of the Great Empire of the Dawn, which was basically one of the biggest discoveries in that whole theory. So thanks, Dern, my homie. So to prepare for this episode, I have been rereading or re-listening as it happens, rest in peace, Roy Dotrice, to all the chapters that take place at the Veil vale and those that lead into them. And I think that's actually going to work well as a way to tackle Sansa's Veil vale chapters, chronologically, just as I read them, as they do seem to form a cohesive, overarching narrative. So we'll start with Sansa's first A Storm of Swords King's Landing chapter after the Purple Wedding, which begins with her on the way to meet Dantos in the Godswood and make her escape. The entire chapter is basically all about transformation. Sansa's transformation, and more importantly, Nissa Nissa's. Sansa is fleeing the Red Keep. She arrives in the Godswood, and then she pulls out a hidden change of clothes from the bowl of an oak. She thinks back to the Purple Wedding itself and the flight from the scene of Joffrey's death, and we get some great Nissa Nissa agony and ecstasy language. The sight of it had been too terrible to watch, and she had turned and fled, sobbing. Lady Tanda had been fleeing as well. You have a good heart, my lady, she said to Sansa. Not every maid would weep so for a man who had her set aside and wed to a dwarf. A good heart. I have a good heart. Hysterical laughter rose up in her gullet, but Sansa choked it back down. The bells were ringing, slow and mournful. Ringing, ringing ringing. They had rung for King Robert in the same way. Joffrey was dead. He was dead. He was dead, dead, dead. Why was she crying when she wanted to dance? Were they tears of joy? So laughing and weeping, crying and dancing. And who has a better heart than Nissa Nissa, of course, she who tempered the red sword of heroes in her own heart. The idea of crying Nissa Nissa is followed up on a couple of pages later, as it says, I could never abide the weeping of women, Joff once said, but his mother was the only woman weeping now. Cersei is another Fire Moon figure, and her tears would accordingly be Fire Moon meteor symbols. Cersei's widow's wail here is a mirror of Joffrey's sword, widow's wail, an obvious Fire Moon meteor symbol, and a Lightbringer symbol, just like Cersei's tears. So once we get to the Eyrie, We'll see Moon Maiden tears serving as Ice Moon symbols, of course, but here in King's Landing, this is a fiery affair. And I think it's pretty cool. It's like Cersei's whale itself is a call out to Widow's Whale, and that's a Fire Moon thing, and her tears are also Fire Moon, too. So it's good to see the Fire Moon Maiden just, like, weeping swords, basically. And that is the idea. So then we get a terrific set of moon-darkening metaphors. Dress warmly, Sir Dantos had told her, and dress dark. She had no black, so she chose a dress of thick brown wool. The bodice was decorated with freshwater pearls, though. The cloak will cover them. 
The cloak was a deep green with a large hood. She slipped the dress over her head and donned the cloak, though she left the hood down for a moment. There were shoes as well, simple and sturdy with flat heels and square toes. The gods heard my prayer, she thought. She felt so numb and dreamy. My skin has turned to porcelain, to ivory, to steel. Her hands moved swiftly, awkwardly, as if they had never let down her hair before. Okay, there's lots going on here. Pearls are basically always moon symbols, and these pearls are getting covered by a dark cloak. That dark green cloak is actually the formerly white one that Sandor gave her, his Kingsguard white cloak, actually. It was stained with blood, so Sansa, never one to waste good wool, yeah, that's it, uh, kept it and dyed it dark green, which means it already has moon darkening symbolism, and then here it is covering up Sansa's moon pearls. Sansa herself is dressing dark, which implies Sansa as a darkened moon maiden. She's also turning from porcelain, or turning to porcelain and ivory and then to steel, which complements the idea of her turning into a stone. It also mirrors, the all, uh, mirrors all the sword-tempering language at Danny's alchemical wedding and in her matching dragon dreams, where she was being tempered by the fire. And it, this implies basically the same thing, that Sansa and Danny are both fire-moon maidens uh, who depict the moon turning into sword-like meteor stones. Uh, from which actual magic swords can't even be made. So accompanied by Dantos, Sansa leaves the godswood, descends the serpentine steps, and then passes through quite a bit of hellish netherworld imagery. This builds on the feeling that Sansa has of being in a dreamlike state that we saw in the last passage, and although I didn't actually pull the quote, this idea was introduced in the very beginning of the chapter, where the second sentence was, Sansa felt as though she were in a dream. And that's the whole deal with this whole portal in-between journey that she's doing. It's, it's a dreamlike uh, experience. So what kind of dream is it? Well, this is dead Nissa Nissa we're talking about, so it would have to be a dragon dream. They continued down the serpentine and across a small sunken courtyard. Sir Danto shoved open a heavy door and lit a taper. They were inside a long gallery. Along the walls stood empty suits of armor, dark and dusty, their helms crested with Rose's scales that continued down their backs. As they hurried past, the taper's light made the shadows of each scale stretch and twist. The hollow knights are turning into dragons, she thought. Cool. <laughs> Descending the serpentine steps is certainly suggestive of a descent into hell. Shout out to Painkiller Jane of the Twitteros, who's in the chat. And indeed, I uh, below, Sansa finds empty suits of armor and hollow knights turning into dragons. Uh, this is, or I guess the empty suits of armor are the hollow knights turning into dragons, I meant to say. So this is fairly obvious moon meteor talk, of course, but I think it's primarily an important green zombies clue. Think about it. In the Weirwood Goddess series, I think I pretty well established that Nissa Nissa has some sort of very strong connection to the Weirwood trees, and that she seems to go into the Weirwood net when she dies, or perhaps uh, even she helps create the Weirwood net, or maybe modify it so that mankind can access it, something along those lines. Uh, but here we have Sansa flying from the scene of the death of the sun, and then using the godswood as an escape route while in a dreamlike state. She's dreaming in the godswood, people, and using the godswood and then the serpentine steps as a kind of portal or door to the underworld. So think of all the weirwood doors and gates that we've seen. 
some of which are at the Erie. There's even a famous one under the wall, which we'll talk about in the future, to have no fear. Now recall also that Sansa pulls a dark green cloak out of the bowl of an oak, almost as if she's pulling the dark green right out of the wood itself and wearing it. It's another way of depicting her as entering the trees, and don't forget that she's combining the green cloak with a dark brown dress, so very earthy. Then after meeting her psychopomp fool character, whom we'll speak of in a moment, Sansa immediately descends the serpentine steps to the dragon underworld. Repeat, Nissa Nissa dies and then uses the weirwoods as a door to enter some sort of dragon-like afterlife or underworld. And gosh, haven't we seen this show before? Here again, I'm drawing upon the weirwood goddess material where we saw that Cat, playing the Nissa Nissa role, symbolically goes into the weirwood net by attaining the weirwood stigmata at the Red Wedding. And she was also guided along by a fool, Jingle Bell, just as Sansa is guided by Dantos. Uh, Catelyn's next stop is a sort of dragon weirwood underworld place, the Hollow Hill, formerly inhabited by Beric, the Flaming Sword hero, who passed on his flame of life to wake Cat as Lady Stoneheart. The weirwood cave symbolism, of course, is explicit, and the dragon symbolism comes by way of Beric's many parallels to Bloodraven, Jon Snow, Azor High, and the Night's Watch, which we've talked about endlessly. I've said before that Cat represents the ghost of Nissa Nissa, or at least Stoneheart anyways, uh, when she exists inside the weirwood net. Just, uh, it's very similar to the white-haired and red-eyed ghost of Highheart haunting the circle of weirwood stumps atop the hill whose name she bears. These are weirwood ghost figures haunting the weirwood net. And playing the part of Lady Stoneheart's Green Zombie Night's Watchmen are, of course, the Brotherhood Without Banners, who are called the Knights of the Hollow Hill. Hollow Hill, Hollow Hill. Wasn't there just a line about hollow knights turning into dragons in Sansa's underworld scene? Indeed. These are entirely matching scenes, with Sansa's hollow dragon knights doing the same thing that Stoneheart's Knights of the Hollow Hill do. They're playing the role of green zombies. Those zombies are hollow shells until they are raised uh, because they're corpses. And that's exactly what's happening with Sansa beneath the Red Keep. Sansa is symbolically raising the hollow knights from the dead by walking past with a light that makes their shadows move. This is also comparable to another Fire Queen Nissa Nissa figure, Melisandre, when she goes beneath Storm's End to birth a shadow baby in a cave. The cave mouth and the white rock face, mouth, face, and a couple of other things gave that cave weirwood symbolism, and Melisandre is, of course, playing the weirwood goddess figure and animating a black shadow, just as Sansa does beneath the Red Keep. As we've seen many times, the shadow babies in the Black Brothers of the Night's Watch have heavily overlapping symbolism, so... These are all the same story. In totality, what I see happening here is Sansa playing the role of the Fire Moon Maiden, whom we also know as the Weirwood Goddess, dying and descending into the underworld where she is able to raise dragons from the dead. These are the first Night's Watch zombies, whom we already know have dragon and shadow symbolism. The parallels to her mother and her Lady Stoneheart form, as well as to Melisandre, really make the symbolism pop here and say... If Sansa becomes Elaine Stone in her heart, as Peter tells her she must, wouldn't Sansa be a stone heart too? Hmm. The next paragraph in Sansa's Escape from King's Landing chapter uh, gives us more great netherworld imagery. One more stair took them to an oaken door banded with iron. Be strong now, my jonquil. You are almost there. When Dantos lifted the bar and pulled open the door, Sansa felt a cold breeze on her face. 
She passed through 12 feet of wall and then she was outside the castle, standing at the top of a cliff. Below was the river, above the sky, and one was as black as the other. Oh boy. We've got uh, comparing the sky to a sea or a river. This is something that jumps off the page for us mythical astronomers. Now, we modern humans use the term spaceship because space has always been conceived of as a kind of black cosmic ocean. This cosmic ocean idea often serves as a metaphor for the netherworld, something that we've touched on before in other essays. So compare this scene to one of Danny's visions from the House of the Undying from A Clash of Kings. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. A dark stream wandering through the Dothraki Sea and a sea of stars above. This is actually a match to Danny's Wake the Dragon dream from A Game of Thrones, where she again plays up the Dothraki Sea idea with rippling water language. She saw sunlight on the Dothraki Sea, the living plain rich with the smells of earth and dearth, death. Wind stirred the grasses and they rippled like water. Drogo held her in strong arms and his hand stroked her sex and opened her and woke that sweet wetness that was his alone. And the stars smiled down on them, stars in a daylight sky. Home, she whispered as she, as he entered her and filled her with his seed. But suddenly the stars were gone and across the blue sky swept the great wings and took the world aflame. I really can't believe I didn't giggle. It was like really quite difficult not to giggle. <laughs> I was muted the entire time, man. <laughs> I'm horrible. <laughs> so this is this is a classic scene here. The sun and moon copulate, then the dragons take wing, the world takes flame, and the stars are hidden. It's very standard stuff. The waves of night and moon blood have been let loose. And that's what's going on in Sansa's scene, too. She's just let loose all kinds of darkness and moon blood at the Red Wedding, and now she's entering that dark, starless stream. Once out on the water, Sansa remarks to herself that, quote, they had the dark river all to themselves, just like Danny in the Dothraki Sea after the lights go out. Fortunately, they have a handy guide through this dark sea. The Merlin King, who else, right? Well, before we get to that, Sansa has to climb down the cliff face, and we see her beginning to turn cold. Sansa dared not look down. She kept her eyes on the face of the cliff, making certain each step before reaching for the next. The stone was rough and cold. Sometimes she could feel her fingers slipping, and the handholds were not as evenly spaced as she would have liked. The bells would not stop ringing. Before she was halfway down, her arms were trembling, and she knew that she was going to fall. One more step, she told herself. One more step. She had to keep moving. If she stopped, she would never start again, and Dawn would find her still clinging to the cliff, frozen in fear. One more step, and one more step. The ground took her by surprise. She stumbled and fell, her heart pounding. When she rolled onto her back and stared up from where she had come, her head swam dizzily, and her fingers clawed at the dirt. Okay, so first... It's just the stone that's cold, but then Sansa Stark is turning into Elaine Stone, too, so she imagines herself frozen to the cliff when the dawn comes. Hello, dawn equals original Ice of House Stark theory. Heck, the idea of dawn finding Nissa Nissa frozen 
almost sounds like Dawn as Lightbringer stabbing Nissa Nissa and taking all her fire and warmth and leaving her frozen. Or perhaps some sort of icy analog to that story involving Night's Queen. We'll speculate on that some other time. Uh, but then we have falling moon maiden language as the ground takes her by surprise and she stumbles and falls with her heart of a fallen star pounding as she hits. Uh, her head swims dizzily, implying the severed head moon meteor symbol and the idea of a moon or moon meteor drowning, a la the sea dragon and the drowned goddess ideas. Remember, she's about to have the dark river to herself. So think also of Danny immersing herself in the black waters of the womb of the world as the reflection of the moon seems to swim on the lake with her. That's basically the same symbolism as Sansa descending into the black river of darkness here. These are moon maidens entering the dark ocean or dark river. Right before Danny did that, uh, immersing herself in the womb of the world, that is, she manifested incredible weirwood stigmata symbolism when she eats the horse heart, which gives her the bloody mouth and hands. Uh, and this strongly implies Danny as a Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess figure entering the weirwood net, just as Sansa goes through the godswood during escape. And yes, I'm definitely holding out on you guys big time by summarizing that Danny weirwood stigmata thing in just one sentence. But don't worry. We will have a full episode on Danny's strange and abundant Green Seer symbolism uh, coming soon in this very series. It's going to be part of the Ravenous Reader Green Sea material, which I'm sure some of you guys can already see uh, seeping in the edges here in this episode. Uh, in any case, so for now, I just want to point out the pattern of entering the Weirwood Net symbolism being followed by entering the dark river, sea, pond, or lake symbolism. Heck, even Cat's body is thrown into the green fork of the trident after she is killed at the uh, Red Wedding before she winds up inside her weirwood cave with a bunch of fire worshippers. So next up, after Oswell rows them past all the drowned and broken ships that were destroyed during the Battle of the Blackwater, which sort of emphasizes, again, this whole underworld, afterlife uh, state of everything here, uh, then we catch sight of the Merlin King. The eastern sky was vague with the first hint of dawn, when Sansa finally saw a ghostly shape in the darkness ahead, a trading galley, her sails furled and moving slowly on a bank of oars. As they drew closer, she saw the ship's figurehead, a merman with a golden crown blowing a great seashell horn. Well, it's a ghost ship. And, of course, a ghost ship is a perfect psychopomp symbol to ferry our mood maiden across the river sticks, if you will, to her new home on Ice Moon World. Pay no attention to the great seashell horn he's blowing. I'm sure that has nothing to do with magical horns or waking the sleepers or anything like that. Actually, it's a perfect call out to another Nissa Nissa Moon Maiden being given a weirwood-like death transformation scene while backed up to a tree. It's also one of my favorites, so let's quote it. And then her back came up hard against a tree and she could dance no more. The wolf raised the axe above his head to split her head in two. Asha tried to slip to her right, but her feet were tangled in some roots trapping her. She twisted, lost her footing, and the axe head crunched against her temple with a scream of steel on steel. The world went red and black and red again. Pain crackled up her leg like lightning, and far away she heard the Northmen say, you bloody cunt, as he lifted his axe up for the blow that would finish her. A trumpet blew. That's wrong, she thought. There are no trumpets in the drowned god's watery halls. 
Below the waves, the Merlings hail their lord by blowing into seashells. She dreamt of red hearts burning and a black stag in a golden wood with a flame streaming from his antlers. Boy, howdy. The Nissa Nissa weird goddess symbolism sure is strong here. Asha is backed up against a tree like a weirwood sacrifice. She's even tangled in the roots. Then she's struck a lightning-like blow that makes the world go red and black and red again. And here we are, of course, supposed to think of the storm god's thunderbolts setting the tree ablaze, which brings the fire of the gods to man. Then, just like Sansa dreaming in the godswood during her transformation, Asha dreams after her weirwood sacrifice routine and sees Azor High himself, the fiery black stag in the golden wood. Then, just as Sansa follows up her transformation in the godswood by entering the dark river and catching sight of the Merling King and his seashell horn, Asha thinks of Merlings and the seashell horns and the drowned god's watery halls. That's a pretty damn tight correlation now, isn't it? (laughs) Good stuff. So the message here is very clear, I think, at least the basics of it. Nissa Nissa dies. She enters the Weirwood Net. And that seems to act as a portal to various types of underworld places, either a dark dungeon with hollow dragon knights or a hollow hill with fire-worshipping knights on one hand, or a dark river or stream or lake or sea. And frequently we get both. So there's a strong implication that this is not the end point of the journey, however. And this is definitely true for Sansa. She's headed to the ice moon place known as the Eyrie, which is where she seems to diverge from her mother's Nissa Nissa arc, a.k.a. Stoneheart, uh, because Stoneheart is still down in her warm and toasty R'hllor cave, running on fire magic, and is not locked in the ice. That could always change in the future, of course. More on this to come. Uh, Sansa, however, only briefly passes through the Godswood and the Dragon Underworld before she's onto the Dark River and the Merlin King on the way to the Eyrie. After Sansa is safely aboard the Merlin King, shivering though she is, it's time to reward the fool version of Azor High for offering up his wife in sacrifice. That's right, I'm talking about Dantos. Dantos the Red, that is. The Red Side of Heroes. This is a bit of a side branch, but a necessary one. Of course, you'll remember that Peter Baelish double-crosses Dantos in front of Sansa and then promptly murders him as soon as Sansa is aboard. And that scene is actually going to be a parallel to the Red Wedding, where another Azor High fool figure, Aegon Frey, a.k.a. Jingle Bell, was executed at the same time that another Fire Moon weirwood goddess figure, Cat, symbolically enters the weirwood net. That's right, it's another Sansa Cat parallel, and there are plenty more to come. As for Dantos the Fool as Azor High, it's not too confusing as long as you remember that more than one person can play the same archetypal role. So... Just because Joffrey is Sansa's dying solar king at the Red Wedding doesn't mean that Dantos can't also play an Azor high role for Sansa here, because it kind of goes scene by scene. And if we hearken back to the scene in King's Landing where Dantos tries to shield Sansa from the Kingsguard abuse, the symbolism is actually pretty easy to recognize. It even has a morning star. Let me beat her, Dantos shoved forward, tin armor clattering. He was armed with a morning star whose head was a melon. My Florian. She could have kissed him, blotchy skin and broken veins and all. He trotted his broomstick around her, shouting, Traitor! Traitor! and whacking her over the head with the melon. Sansa covered herself with her hands, staggering every time fruit pounded her, her hair sticky by the second blow. People were laughing. The melon flew to pieces. 
Laugh, Joffrey, she prayed as the juice run down her face and the front of her blue silk gown. Laugh and be satisfied. So here's Dantos the Red hitting Sansa with a morning star at Joffrey's request. It's actually as if Dantos is the comet here, wielded against the fire moon Sansa by the solar king Joffrey. That's something we've seen before. Sometimes a solar figure holding a sword represents both the sun and the comet, such as when Azor High holds Lightbringer, famously. Other times, the sun and its comet are the king and someone acting as the king's sword. The latter scenario is what's happening here. You've got to admit the Melon Morningstar is a real prize winner, and yeah, that's another melon joke. It's actually a lot like when the Cat's Paw assassin attacked Catelyn, but was really acting as a Cat's Paw of Joffrey. And there, too, we saw the Cat's Paw as the comet wielded by the Solar King. Later on, after Dantos' death, Peter actually calls Dantos his cat's paw, which creates another nice parallel between Sansa and Cat. Cat was given the weirwood stigmata by the cat's paw assassin at Winterfell, and Sansa was given the very sticky weirwood stigmata by cat's paw Dantos' Morningstar Melon. In any case, we have seen before that there is indeed one version of Azor High who seems to be a sacrificed fool. And I believe that this implies Azor High foolishly seeking after the fire of the gods, essentially. He sacrificed his moon maiden wife, as well as the actual fire moon, to do so, and then reaped the consequences, which included his death. Another way I've said this is that Azor High kills Nissa Nissa to create an entrance or a portal into the weirwood net, and then enters himself, which he does by being sacrificed to the tree. So just as with the mythical astronomy story, both the sun and the moon seem to die in some sort of chain reaction event. Now you'll notice that Sansa thinks of Dantos as her Florian, which implies them as man and wife, and therefore makes the metaphor even better. Sansa is literally thinking, my Florian, right as Dantos hits her with the morning star, which actually gives us a willingness in this sacrifice scenario that stands in very stark contrast to the abusive Azor High Nissa Nissa relationship depicted by Joffrey and Sansa or Peter and Sansa. So, just thought I would point that out. Dantos is a fool, of course, just like Jingle Bell, and Martin even uses the ringing of the city bells as Dantos first appears to Sansa in the Godswood uh, to enhance the fool vibe of Dantos. She heard a faint rustle of leaves and stuffed the silver hairnet down deep in the pocket of her cloak. Who's there, she cried. Who is it? The god's wood was dim and dark, and the bells were bringing Joff into his grave. Me, he staggered out from under the trees, reeling drunk. He caught her arm to steady himself. Sweet Jonquil, I've come. Your Florian has come. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Sansa. Yes, Florian has is, is come. He's here. Now give me a kiss. A brittle smack on the lips. Just imagine how comforting that must have been, right? Drunk <laughs> man has come to save you. Oh, it's, thank goodness. I really like the the psychology of Sansa uh, when she first meets Don. She's trying to process it. She gets this note like, oh, we're going to rescue you. And then she's like, wait, it's this drunk guy. And then she eventually feels sorry for him. And she's like, well, maybe he can help me. I don't know. It's like... It's a cool cool thing for Martin to think of. It's a very interesting dynamic between them. 
because you've got this rescuer figure, but it's subverted by the fact that he's so pathetic and drunk, and Sansa actually sort of sympathizes down, you know, to him. So, I mean, it could have been it could have been Sandor. That's all I have to say. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to. Okay. We're going to have actually some great uh, San San action here uh, later in this episode. So, San San fans, uh, or shall we say, fans of the Sansa Sandor dynamic, will not be disappointed. So, um, here's what we've got. We can imagine Dantos, uh, and I guess let me just read this again since I went off on a tangent. The way that the bells and Dantos appear is really great. Basically, he you hear the rustle of leaves. And it says, the godswood was dim and dark, and the bells were ringing Joff into his grave. Me, he staggered out from under the trees, reeling drunk. So it's like you hear the bells, you see the trees, and then Dantos emerges with the bells ringing. So it really reminds you of Aegon Jingle Bell or even Patchface with their fool's bells ringing about them. And uh, you'll notice that Dantos emerges amidst the rustling of the leaves in the godswood. And of course, rustling godswood leaves imply green seer talk. Then Dantos staggers out from under the trees. Those are both green seer clues, indicating the fool figure as a stag man, like Patchface, who wears an antlered helm, or like uh, the Azor High as the black stag that Asha saw when she was dying, or at least passing out. Um, and then, of course, uh, the under the trees line refers to green seers who live under the trees. So he's staggering out from under the trees. This is, uh, amidst the whispers of the godswood. It's it's pretty, uh, like I said, you know, I always look for the multiple correlations. There you go. It's like three Green Seer references all clustered together. And so once again, the Florian uh, Jonquil dynamic is mentioned, which reemphasizes Dantos as playing a husband role to Sansa's Nissa Nissa. So Dantos is a foolish stag man Azor High, the red sot of heroes. And as it turns out, he is indeed selling his Nissa Nissa's life in return for dragons which sound like meteors. Lord Peter, Sir Dantos called from the boat. I must needs row back before they think to look for me. Peter Baelish put a hand on the rail. But first you'll want your payment. 10,000 dragons, was it? 10,000. Dantos rubbed his mouth with the back of his hand. As you promised, my lord. Sir Lothor, the reward. Lothor Brun dipped his torch. Three men stepped to the gunwale, raised crossbows, fired. One bolt took Dantos in the chest as he looked up, punching through the left crown on his surcoat. The others ripped into the throat and the belly. It had happened so quickly, neither Dantos nor Sansa had time to cry out. When it was done, Lothar Brun tossed the torch down on top of the corpse. The little boat was blazing fiercely as the galley moved away. You killed him. Clutching the rail, Sansa turned away and wretched. Had she escaped the Lannisters to tumble into worse? My lady, Littlefinger murmured, your grief is wasted on such a man as that. He was a sot and no man's friend. But he saved me. He sold you for a promise of 10,000 dragons. Your disappearance will make them suspect you in Joffrey's death. The gold cloaks will hunt. The eunuch will jingle his purse. Dantos? Well, you heard him. He sold you for gold. And when he drunk it up, he would have sold you again. A bag of dragons buys a man's silence for a while, but a well-placed quarrel buys it forever. And I heard a couple people in the chat mention that that was their uh, favorite little finger line. It definitely encompasses his philosophy. 
but unfortunately, what we have here is Dantos simply got the answer wrong. He should have asked for a thousand thousand dragons, not a hundred thousand. That was the problem. As you can see, or ten thousand rather. As you can see, foolish Azora High has sold his moon maiden for a bag of dragons. That's pretty great meteor shower stuff. I mean, he's literally converting a Nissa Nissa figure into a spherical object containing dragons. Peter, however, foresees him drinking up these hard-won moon dragons, which represent the fire of the gods, of course. So, in other words, Dantos is seeking the fire of the gods, which he wants to consume. But that kills him, of course, as it always does. And we can see that, or at least it triggers, uh, you know, either death or death transformation. Of course, that's kind of a continuum. We know that. And we can see that his 10,000 dragons turn out to be three projectiles, much in the way that the 1,000,000 dragons of Carthian myth are symbolized by Danny's three dragons. The archers shooting down from above in a surprise betrayal attack is yet another parallel to the Red Wedding, where we had traitorous archers shooting down from above and a fool character dying. It's pretty obvious once you notice it. As for Sansa hurling over the rail, well, whenever a moon maiden wretches... That's just what it looks like. It's a moon face cracking open to pour forth rivers of unpleasant things. It works in parallel to the dragon arrows descending from above at the same moment. So just as Cat was thrown into the river after the Red Wedding, uh, in a mockery of the Tully funeral rites, we have yet another strange mockery or facsimile of the Tully funeral rites, as the boat containing Dantos, now Corpse Dantos, is set on fire. More importantly, this is a screamingly obvious sea dragon clue, a parallel to the burning wooden gods of the Seven on Dragonstone, which were made from the mass of Targaryen ships. So they were burning ships and dragons and gods, all those things. This is Azor High entering the Weirwood Net, obtaining the fire of the gods and undergoing fire transformation, as we've seen countless times before. The Grey King possessing the fire of the sea dragon, for example, which is both a Weirwood boat and a burning tree. All right, well, that does it for this chapter. Now it's time to set sail for Peter's ancestral home on the fingers. Petey Got Fingered. This next section is sponsored by four more priests and priestesses of story wisdom. Patchface of motley wisdom. Obscured by clouds, the mayor of Walrusville, guest of Yupik, and servant of Bodhi. Nayessa the Water Nymph, Goddess of Pain and Mercy, and Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, Bear Mama of the Sacred Den. Thank you, folks. And, of course, Nayessa the Water Nymph is an especially apt nickname for this episode. So good job choosing that one. All right, this next chapter is mostly about Peter Baelish, and to a lesser extent, Lysa. However, the Sansa bits in it will act as jumping-off points to some pretty cool world mythology, so we're going to talk about both Peter and Sansa, and a little bit of Lysa, and a little bit of Marillion. Bastard that he is. All right. So the next chapter, uh, yes, uh, begins with the Merlin King drawing close to the shore near Peter's meager holdings on the fingers, which is the name for the series of stony peninsulas on the northwest coast of the Vale. For the most part, this place, the finger, seems to serve as an analog to the eerie, with the same symbolism in miniature. The main features are sheep, sheep shit, and stones. Peter calls himself Lord of Sheep Shit and Master of the Drearfort, for example. A moment later, he comments that the fingers are a lovely place if you happen to be a stone. 
which is actually ironic since Sansa is changing her name to Elaine Stone. A stone in the fingers. Are we talking about throwing rocks? Ice Moon Apocalypse! Oh, sorry, too soon, too soon. Peter also quips that no one has made off with any of my rocks or sheep pellets, that I see plainly. So I do, do apologize, but I must break the seal on the number two symbolism. By which I mean, well, the sheep pellets. First the sheep, how about that? Sheep are interesting for two reasons. Craster sacrifices sheep to the others when he doesn't have any male sons handy, which sort of implies the others, Craster's sons, as analogous to sheep in some sense. And indeed, a couple of people, like Sweet Sunray, for example, have done research along these lines. Craster, the father of at least a handful of white walkers, himself wears sheepskin and has curly white body hair as well. The other thing that's interesting about sheep is that they have black skin and white wool. So they are a nice visual depiction of a black fire moon meteor dragon locked in the ice. You knew I was going to say it. A black sheep locked in wool, I suppose it would be. Think of John when he goes over to the others as the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. John wheeled and followed Tormund back toward the head of the column, his new cloak hanging heavy from his shoulders. It was made of unwashed sheepskins worn fleece side in, as the wildlings suggested. It kept the snow off well enough, and at night it was good and warm. But he kept his black cloak as well, folded up beneath his saddle. So John going north of the wall is definitely one symbolic depiction of him going into the ice, under the ice, beyond the icy veil or curtain, and so on and so forth. Slapping a sheepskin on him works on a few levels, as you can see. It depicts John's locked in ice status. It makes the excellent wolf in sheep's clothing joke. And it shows John as a kind of good other, armored in ice, if you will. But hidden away under his saddle is his black cloak, just as John retains a a bit of his true identity as a brother of the Watch underneath. And I would say just as Sansa retains her Sansa Stark identity somewhere under the Elaine Stone cloak that she wears. One other thing about sheep. The Valerians were shepherds before they were dragonlords. Does this imply Azor High? The blood of the dragon as a shepherd of the others? Maybe. Maybe. Or you might say that Azor Ahai turned Night's King is like the sheep all-father, like Craster. So that's my take on sheep. They represent the ice moon and the others. And those black sheep pellets would represent the expulsion of the dragons locked in ice, I believe. And yes, I just called John a sheep pellet. Oh, well. That's why Peter mentions the sheep pellets in the same breath with stones several times, because they're basically the same thing, moon meteor pellets and stones. Peter remarks upon the familiar scent of the dung fire in the hearth, which kind of implies them as burning moon meteors in the hearth, and that sounds like some bloodstone emperor magic to me. The more interesting Peter Baelish symbolism, more interesting than the sheep pellets, awaits inside, above that very same hearth. Above the hearth hung a broken longsword and a battered oaken shield, its paint cracked and flaking. The device painted on the shield was one Sansa did not know, a gray stone head with fiery eyes upon a light green field. My grandfather's shield, Peter explained when he saw her gazing at it. His own father was born in Bravos and came to the Vale as a sellsword in the hire of Lord Corbray, so my grandfather took the head of the Titan as his sigil when he was knighted. It's very fierce, said Sansa. Rather too fierce for an amiable fellow like me, said Peter. I much prefer my mockingbird. 
So uh, we remember the ghost of High Heart, speaking of Sansa slaying a savage castle, or a savage giant, rather, in a castle built of snow. And, of course, it's commonly held in the fandom that Peter is that giant via his titan of Bravo's head sigil. He rules atop the giant's lance once he becomes Lord Protector of the Eyrie, which you could sort of see as the head of the giant mountain, perhaps. And Gregor Clegane, the mountain of a man who parallels the giant's lance, has his head removed, supposedly, and here's Peter with the titan of Bravos's severed head on his old sigil. Of course, we know what beheadings are all about in mythical astronomy terms. It signifies solar and lunar death. The sun and moon are quite often seen as floating faces with invisible bodies. So beheading a moon person amounts to plucking the moon from the sky. Gregor Clegane is a fire moon warrior before his beheading, and only afterward does he get locked in the snow-white armor of the Kingsguard. So his beheading is the same symbolism as him breaking off his giant's lance in Sir Hugh's throat. Put it this way. Imagine the dark stone of the giant's lance as the decapitated head of the fire moon giant crash-landed in the snow. That's what Peter represents. His family comes to the Vale with a fiery-eyed titan head, but gets caught in the grasp of the fingers of the Vale, and finally, the icy eerie itself. The titan head is also implied as sinking into the sea as it appears on a light green field. Peter then swaps it for his mockingbird, and mockingbird folklore in the real world turns out to be closely related to mermaids and sirens. All of them share one key personality trait, which is that they lure and entrap the unwary, often luring them to their doom. And you can quickly see uh, how this kind of folklore is a natural fit for Peter. And here I will stop and give a shout out to the Disputed Lands, who is the mermaid expert and first turned me on to mermaid symbolism way back in the day. And no, that's not a sexy mermaid turn-on joke. Um, And uh, the Disputed Lands... Although, yeah, I would probably fall for the mermaid, let's be honest. Um, so The Disputed Lands does have a, uh, a video coming out soon on mermaid stuff. So I don't know what that's going to be called, but you should all go and subscri- uh, subscribe to Disputed Lands and look forward to her mermaid and siren video, which is coming soon. Okay, back to the magic. So let's talk about mermaids. I'll do this as briefly as I can, which means about 20 minutes. We've talked about mermaids before. Yes, we have. When the moon goddess is depicted as falling into the sea, as in the sea dragon myth and the related scene with Danny dipping into the womb of the world, she can be seen as becoming a mermaid or sea goddess. That's our best reading of the Elenai Durin God's Grief legend, where Durin God's Grief steals the daughter of the wind and sea gods, who must logically be an aquatic figure, Uh, And this provokes the divine wrath of the gods in the form of a tremendous storm. I believe this is simply another version of the idea of a powerful green seer magician stealing the moon goddess, who can be seen as a mermaid. The Grey King, the notorious godly fire stealer himself, also marries a mermaid. And this to me reads as yet another way of implying the Grey King as possessing the moon meteor mojo which might actually refer to the Seastone Chair, that oily black thing that dropped straight out of Cthulhu land uh, and landed on the shores of Old Wick. But never mind that, we're talking about mermaids. Uh, And here's the thing about mermaid legends, which are plentiful and rich in nature. They almost always revolve around the idea of forbidden love, based on the idea that mermaids cannot really be happy out of the sea, and humans cannot really be happy, or alive, in the sea. Often the mermaid or siren is luring and entrapping humans 
to draw them under the water, and sometimes it's the other way around, with the human trapping the mermaid or selkie on land, which, spoiler alert, doesn't usually work out very well. Uh, Martin references some of this mythology in an old Andal legend about their founding hero, Hugor of the Hill, here named as Huko. An old legend told in Pentos claims that the Andals slew the swan maidens who lured travelers to their deaths in the Velvet Hills that lie to the east of the free city. A hero whom the Pentoshi singers called Huko led the Andals at that time, and it is said that he slew the seven maids not for their crimes, but instead as sacrifice to his gods. There are some maesters who have noted that Hugo may well be a rendering of the name Hugor. Here we find Hugor slash Huko slaying the swan maidens, and as you can see, they are doing the standard siren thing of luring travelers to their doom. Interestingly, elsewhere we find Hugor Hell marrying an aquatic woman instead of slaying one. And this is actually Tyrion reciting from the seven-pointed star in A Dance with Dragons. The maid brought him forth a girl, as supple as a willow with eyes like deep blue pools. And Hugo declared that he would have her for his bride. Uh, Willow trees happen to grow near water. And their mythology reflects this by associating willow trees with water and the moon. Hecate, the Greek goddess of the moon and sorcery, is associated with the willow, for example. And uh, together with the eyes-like blue pools, Hugor's maiden is definitely an aquatic figure. Uh, So point being, as is so often the case, the line between fucking and fighting is quite blurry with Hugor, as he's both killing and marrying aquatic maidens. It's the same with Durin and Elenai, actually. His claiming of Elenai from the gods dooms her to a mortal's lifespan, and thus... Durin is kind of killing her as well as marrying her. That kind of fits the whole Azor Ahai and Nissa, Nissa vibe, and of course the celestial analog of the sun killing his wife, the moon. One other point on willows. They're often called weeping willows, which just is, you know, kind of convenient for the weeping symbolism that George already has going on. Oh, and I suppose I should mention this line about Sansa's eyes from A Feast for Crows. Peter studied her eyes, as if seeing them for the first time. You have your mother's eyes, honest eyes and innocent, blue as a sunlit sea. When you are a little older, many a man will drown in those eyes. Sansa did not know what to say to that. Get a job, Peter. That's what you say. Quit being a creep. Get a job. Get a job. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But of course, uh, in terms of symbolism, this is interesting. Uh, A a sunlit sea isn't quite a blue pool, but of course you realize it is much the same symbolism. And look, Sansa is trying to drown men in her sunlit sea eyes, just like a swan maiden of Anda Legend. Best of all, Sansa, just like the willowy maiden of Anda Legend, is also married to Hugor Hill. YOLO. YOLO sounds like something you might name a monkey. Worse, it is a Pentashi name, and any fool could see that Tyrion was no Pentashi. In Pentos I am Yolo, he said quickly, to make what amends he could. But my mother named me Hugor Hill. Are you a little king or a little bastard? asked Halden. So that was from A Dance with Dragons, and Halden's question refers to the fact that Hugor Hill is both the name of the greatest and first Andal king, uh, but also that Hill is the bastard name in the Westerlands, just as Snow is in the North and Stone is in the Vale. 
And of course, my little joke was that Sansa is technically married to Tyrion, or was, or whoever that works, which kind of ties a neat little bow on the aquatic lady symbolism. She's got eyes like blue seas, and she's married to Hugo Hill. Pretty cool. So here's where Peter and Mockingbirds come in. The Mockingbird does much the same thing as Sirens and Swan Maidens. Real Mockingbirds are, of course, known for their amazing and uncanny ability to perfectly mimic a wide variety of sounds, even complex sounds like the shutter flash of an expensive camera, which is a sound that some birds hear a lot. This naturally gives rise to Mockingbird legends, where the Mockingbird uses its false voices and impressions to lure people to their doom, something like a siren or a mermaid. And if you stop and think about it, you'll realize that is exactly what Peter does. I mean, he doesn't wander the Red Keep trying to fool Varys by projecting his voice around corners or pretending to be Cersei or something, but he does use false words to lure the Starks time and time again. First, he and Lysa lure Ned and crew to King's Landing after murdering Jon Arryn and then blaming the Lannisters in the letter that Cat and Ned receive at the beginning of A Game of Thrones. This is actually the major mechanism of plot movement in the opening act of the story, and it's straight-up mockingbird, siren, mermaid behavior in that Peter uses Lysa's voice, one that the Starks trust, to lie and lure the Starks to King's Landing, whereupon he lies some more to Ned and then betrays him. All of this comes across very strongly in a nightmare that Ned has while he's imprisoned in the black cells beneath the Red Keep, which is, of course, largely Littlefinger's doing. The king heard him. You stiff-necked fool, he muttered, too proud to listen. Can you eat pride, Stark? Will honor shield your children? Cracks ran down his face, fissures opening in the flesh, and he reached up and ripped the mask away. It was not Robert at all. It was Littlefinger, grinning, mocking him. When he opened his mouth to speak, his lies turned to pale gray moths and took wing. So moths are almost always death symbols, and so here we see the mockingbird behavior summed up very well. Peter mocks, and then his lies are like death and entrapment. And that's exactly what's happened to Ned, who's trapped in the Red Keep uh, black cells at that very moment by Peter's manipulations. Note also that Robert is a stolar uh, stagman king all the way, and here we see him dying and giving way to the face of the dark solar king. And that's a great bit of mythical astronomy visualization, if I do say so myself. So after luring Ned and Cat, he then lures and abducts Sansa to the Eyrie. And his doing so aboard the Merlin King brings the mermaid symbolism back into the... Oh, excuse me. Merman. Merman, sorry. Uh, but blue steel jokes aside, Peter is both a mockingbird and a Merlin King, luring Sansa with lies. Recall his light gray-green eyes, the colors of the sea. Gray and green. Also of zombies. Going back to the titan head, we can now see the full picture. The severed titan's head on green shows us a fiery moon meteor landing in the sea. And its transformation into the mockingbird uh, with Merlin King symbolism depicts the moon meteor as having turned into a denizen of that metaphorical sea who is now luring others in. Or translating to the ice, moon, and veil language, we can say that Peter is at first like a fiery titan head meteor landing in the ice of the veil, like the giant's lance, whereupon he takes up residence there and then lures and entraps others. Now, in terms of long night archetypes, I bet you can guess who Peter Baelish is playing the role of. Night's King, of course. 
We mentioned this super briefly in A Baelish Bard and A Promised Prince, but the name Baal is, of course, the calling card of figures who steal Knight's Queen people, who are often bards. There's, well, uh, Baal the Bard, who steals a Blue Rose-associated daughter of Winterfell, only it turns out they were in love and had a son who became the Lord of Winterfell and then later killed Baal. Then in A Dance with Dragons, Mance Raider, a bard king, beyond the wall in the image of Baal, sneaks into Winterfell as Baal did, wearing the name Abel, which is an anagram for Baal. His mission was, of course, to rescue whom he thought was Arya Stark, only it turns out to be the pale and corpse-like Jane Poole, a most unfortunate Night's Queen figure. Rhaegar is perhaps the most important Baal figure, even though he doesn't have the name. He is a bard king, and of course he has a ton of Night's King symbolism, as we learned in Moons of Ice and Fire, uh, the whole series, I guess. And most famously, he abducts Lyanna Stark of the Blue Winter Rose, though of course they may well have been in love and may have absconded together. So here we have Sansa, abducted from King's Landing by a Bale figure, Peter Baelish. Peter isn't a singer, but the other person who tries to come on to Sansa in a creepy way besides Peter is a bard, and that of course would be Marillion the singer. Marillion and Peter's stories come together in the High Hall of the Eyrie, when Marillion takes the fall for Lysa's murder, which was actually committed by Peter. When Peter comes on to Sansa in the snowcastle scene and kisses her, she thinks that he was acting like Marillion. In other words, the symbolism is shuffled around a bit, but we still have the Bale element and the Bard element, and the abduction of a Stark maiden. And there's a call out to Lyanna, as Marillion escorts Sansa to the throne room for her confrontation with Lysa, actually. Do you require guarding? Marillion said lightly. I am composing a new song, you should know. A song so sweet and sad it will melt even your frozen heart. The roadside rose, I mean to call it. About a base-born girl so beautiful, she bewitched every man who laid eyes upon her. I am a Stark of Winterfell, she longed to tell him. She's a Stark of Winterfell with a frozen heart who's also a rose. A winter rose, in other words. Oh, and Sansa is a witch who bewitches people. Well, maybe not Sansa, and maybe not Lyanna. But definitely Night's Queen and Nissa Nissa. They've got a witchy vibe going on for sure. And uh, some of the other Night's Queen parallel figures, like Val, leaps to mind. Val's definitely got a witchy vibe going on, so we'll look into that more, but... Basically, just think about uh, the weirwood goddess as being a kind of priestess or druid priestess or, you know, something like that. You guys can see that. So anyways, uh, the passage that really makes Peter's solar king turned knight's king status obvious is this one from A Game of Thrones, uh, one which really sets the tone for Peter as a character overall and thus is worth quoting in full. Take it away, Maester Mary. If Ever truly a man had armored himself in gold, it was Peter Baelish, not Jamie Lannister. Jamie's famous armor was but gilded steel. But Littlefinger, ah, Tyrion had learned a few things about sweet Peter to his growing disquiet. Ten years ago, John Aaron had given him a minor cincture in customs, where Lord Peter had soon distinguished himself by bringing in three times as much as any of the king's other collectors. King Robert had been a prodigious spender. A man like Peter Baelish, who had a gift for rubbing two golden dragons together to breed a third, was invaluable to his hand. Littlefinger's rise had been arrow swift. 
Within three years of his coming to court, he was the master of coin and a member of the small council. And today, the Crown's revenues were ten times what they had been under his beleaguered predecessor. Though the Crown's debts had grown vast as well. A master juggler was Peter Baelish. Oh, he was clever. He did not simply collect the gold and lock it in the treasure vault, no. He paid the king's debts in promises and put the king's gold to work. He brought wagons, shops, ships, and houses. He bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. He bought wool from the north and linen from the south and lace from lists and stored it and moved it, dyed it, sold it. The golden dragons bred and multiplied, and Littlefinger lent them out and brought them home with hatchlings. That is a great, uh, a great scene. I mean, this is this is just awesome. Peter's armored in gold, and breeds dragons. You see how clever Martin was to name a mundane thing like a coin after a dragon. It allows him to say things like "so and so." Really has a knack for breeding dragons, and we don't even think about Valeria or genetic blood magic experimentation or anything. Clever, clever man. Clever George. And Peter's cast as a clever man too here, of course, hinting at his Loki-like nature. Now, in terms of mythical astronomy, rubbing two dragons together to breed more equates to smashing the comet dragon into the moon mother of dragons, upon which time all the baby dragon moon meteors are born. The one who rubs the comet against the moon is usually seen as the sun. And indeed, Peter is armored in gold and compared to an obvious solar king figure, Tywin. But when the comet is rubbed against the moon, and sorry if that sounds raunchy, it's meant to, the sun dies, or as we can say that it turns into the dark sun, which we think of as the Lion of Night, who came out during the long night after the maiden made of light, the bright face of the sun, hid her face from the world. Now, sometimes we see a bright solar king turn into a dark solar king, but other times we see the bright and dark sun as separate people, such as with the maiden made of light as the bright face of the sun and the lion of night as the dark face of the sun. So the question is, where is the lion of night during the day? Just follow me here. Well, he's invisible. He's, he's hiding out there beyond the atmosphere in the darkness of space. The night sun can therefore also be thought of as that darkness of space. And indeed, the line of night is basically interchangeable with the stranger, whom I always think of as deep space or the night sky, mainly because of this passage from A Clash of Kings. And the seventh face. The stranger was neither male nor female, yet both. Ever the outcast, the wanderer from far places, less and more than human, unknown and unknowable. Here the face was a black oval, a shadow with stars for eyes. One of my favorite scenes, definitely, and that was Lady Catelyn in a small local sept right before Renly's murder. A black shadow with stars for eyes definitely sounds like we're looking at the face of outer space. Face, uh, space face. And since the comets are called wandering stars, right in the prologue of A Clash of Kings, the, quote, wanderer from far places sounds an awful lot like a comet, coming from deep space, if you ask me. All of which is kind of a trippy way to say that in a certain sense, you can see the line of night or the stranger as sort of hiding out to the darkness of space during the day, but then sending the comet to kill the moon and the sun to darken everything so he can come out. And that's exactly what Peter does at the Purple Wedding. He hid out, 
He's nowhere near the scene of the crime, but he orchestrates cat's paws, who are comet figures, to kill the sun and steal the moon away to the underworld. That's why we meet Peter on the ghost ship Merlin King, which floats on the Dark River. The Dark River is an underworld place and parallels the Black Ocean of Space, as we mentioned earlier. So we can see that the very idea of a Merlin King essentially implies a king of the Dark Ocean underworld, more or less. So now that we have all the symbolism of giants and mockingbirds and mermaids and mermen down, plus a little nod to Leanna Stark, let's get back to the chapter at hand and discover... Yet another mythological reference that implies Peter as trying to lure and entrap Sansa, and that is, of course, the pomegranate. Grizzle reappeared before he could say more, balancing a large platter. She set it down between them. There were apples and pears and pomegranates, some sad-looking grapes, a huge blood orange. The old woman had brought a round of bread as well and a crock of butter. Peter cut the pomegranate in two with his dagger, offering half to Sansa. You should try and eat, my lady. Thank you, my lord. Pomegranate seeds were so messy. Sansa chose a pear instead and took a small, delicate bite. It was very ripe. The juice ran down her chin. Lord Peter loosened a seed with the point of his dagger. You must miss your father terribly, I know. Lord Eddard was a brave man, honest and loyal but quite a hopeless player. He brought the seed to his mouth with a knife. So this is one of the more well-known references to external mythology in the whole book, I would say, or the whole series. Uh, The pomegranate of the Persephone and Hades myth. It's also incredibly good news for Sansa fans that she chooses not to eat the pomegranate. In any case, here is the super-condensed version of the Persephone myth for those who might not know it or might not remember it in full detail. And here I'm going to use the summary from Theoi.com because it's concise and I really couldn't do any better than they have already at writing a summary. So why try? Here it is. Mr. Mary, take it away. Persephone was the goddess queen of the underworld, wife of the god Hades. She was also the goddess of spring growth, who was worshipped alongside her mother Demeter in the Eleusian Mysteries. This agricultural-based cult promised its initiates passage to a blessed afterlife. Persephone was titled Kor, the maiden, as the goddess of spring's bounty. Once upon a time when she was playing in a flowery meadow with her nymph companions, Kore was seized by Hades and carried off into the underworld as his bride. Her mother, Demeter, despaired at her disappearance and searched for her throughout the world, accompanied by the goddess Hecate bearing torches. When she learned that Zeus had conspired in her daughter's abduction, she was furious and refused to let the earth fruit until Persephone was returned. Zeus consented, but because the girl had tasted of the food of Hades, a handful of pomegranate seeds, she was forced to forever spend a part of the year with her husband in the underworld. Her annual return to the earth in spring was marked by the flowering of the meadows and the sudden growth of new grain. Her return to the underworld in winter, conversely, saw the dying down of plants and the halting of growth. In other myths, Persephone appears exclusively as the queen of the underworld, receiving the likes of Hercules and Orpheus at her court. Persephone was usually depicted as a young goddess holding sheaves of grain and a flaming torch. So there you have it, guys. This is a pretty straightforward cycle of the seasons mythology with Persephone and Demeter. 
Demeter is an earth mother type fertility goddess, or Demeter, I guess. Demeter, I'm sorry. There's a <laughs> quick backstory. I play bass guitar, as you know, and there is a bass guitar company that makes amps called Demeter, um, but they say it Demeter instead of Demeter, so that's why I say it the wrong way. Sorry. So Demeter. She is an earth mother type fertility goddess, which is why she can stop the earth from flowering when she is displeased by the absence of her daughter, who personifies the spring itself. Stealing a spring goddess and stopping the spring is kind of like uh, the idea of the Night's King stealing dawn during the long night, if you think about it. And the key thing here is, of course, the pomegranate. Eating the seeds is what binds Persephone to the underworld, for whatever reason. And this is the reason why one of Jon Snow's killers, Bowen Marsh, is nicknamed the Old Pomegranate. He sends Jon right along to the underworld, if you will. Sansa, however, she wisely refuses to eat Peter's pomegranate seeds. Good for her. So I suggested Peter as a Night's King figure, and it's not hard to see how that can overlap with the idea of Hades as a lord of the underworld, stealing Persephone away from the living world and binding her there with an offer of pomegranate seeds. Peter himself eats the seeds as he speaks of Eddard in the past tense, as a poor player of the Game of Thrones. But of course, it was Peter who sent Ned along to the underworld more than anyone else. He's literally picking the seeds out of the fruit as he speaks of Ned's death, almost as if Ned were the seed being plucked out of the realm of the living by Peter. Here we can see George performing a nice synthesis of Persephone pomegranate symbolism and the mockingbird mermaid symbolism. It's all about luring and entrapping, just what Peter's good at, that pointy-haired sleazeball that he is. So it shouldn't surprise you that the symbolism suggests Sansa as not falling for Peter's trap, Ultimately, that fits with her slaying the savage giant as a foreshadowing of her triumphing over Peter. The pear that she eats is not insignificant either, since pears symbolize immortality in Christian mythology and Chinese mythology and perhaps a couple others, because the pear tree will, yield, will uh, actually yield fruit for decades, so it's seen as immortal. It's also associated with the divine feminine pears are, such as the goddess Aphrodite, who was also called Venus. It's very much a choice in opposition of eating the pomegranates and signifies Sansa's future escape from the traps and prisons that she currently finds herself in. Now, a moment later, Littlefinger tries again to feed Sansa a messy red fruit, this time a blood orange. Again, he cuts it in half and answer, uh, offers one part to Sansa, but this time she takes it. And then we have this very funny interplay. He tilted his chin back and squeezed the blood orange, so the juice ran down into his mouth. I love the juice, but I loathe the sticky fingers, he complained, wiping his hands. Clean hands, Sansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. Sansa spooned some juice from her own orange. In other words, Sansa is already learning Peter's lesson, using a spoon to drink the blood orange juice so her hands remain clean as opposed to Peter, who is caught red-handed here. Peter is getting the weirwood stigmata, and he's eating the pomegranate. So it seems like he'll be stuck here for a while, and probably he'll die in the Vale, or, I'd guess, perhaps in another ice moon place like Winterfell. Sansa, meanwhile, has her clean hands, and chooses pears over palm seeds, so the prospects for escape are looking good. Oh, and what's this? I'm getting a mess- yep. Uh, oh, it's, uh, it seems there's more fruit symbolism having to do with Peter as a thief. 
That was our good friend from way back in the Westeros.org days and currently on the Twitter, Isabel Harper, at Sarah T. Bezil, buzzing in to say that we need to talk about Idun and her apples of immortality. Idun, actually, it's, it's pronounced Idun, I believe it is. So, thanks, Sarah. Uh, this is actually a Norse myth, and Idun is the Norse goddess of spring and rejuvenation, very like Demeter, actually. She was the keeper of the apples of immortality. That's her main thing. And it is these apples on which the gods depend to stay forever young. Although they aren't necessarily apples. In the original tale, the word used is a generic word for fruit. So that's actually often the case. Like in the Garden of Eden, we say apple, but we don't know that it was an apple. It doesn't really matter. It's a tree, a fruit from a tree. So in any case, you can guess what happens when uh, Idun gets kidnapped. The gods grow old and weak because they can't eat her apples anymore. Uh, this would be paralleled in A Song of Ice and Fire terms by the moon disaster, which caused the long night, of course. Moon goddess disappears and everybody gets old and dead and stuff. So the parallels to Sansa and the Eerie come in the details of Idun's abduction. It's a two-part dirty deed with Loki the trickster first deceiving Idun and luring her out past the walls of Asgard, where she was promptly set upon by the giant uh, Thea... Uh, how do you say this one? It's T-H-J-A-Z-I. I think it's Theazi. Theazi, yeah, that's it. Who was in league with Loki. So Theazi was disguised as an eagle, and he bore Idun away to his mountain abode. And here we'll quote norsemythology.org. This mountain abode was called Thrymheim, which means Thunderholm, and was situated in the highest mountain peaks, whose icy towers growled down at the fertile fields below. Sounds like someplace we know, doesn't it? I mean, if anything inspired the Eerie, I would say that this seems like it, especially with so much of the Idun kidnapping storyline playing out here. It would seem that Peter plays the role of both Loki and the abducting giant Thiazi. Uh, Peter doesn't transform into an eagle, but by becoming Lord Protector of the Vale, he's essentially pretending to be the Falcon, and he's obviously abducting Sansa, the Idun figure. Peter's parallels to Loki should be abundantly obvious, I'm sure, knowing you myth heads as well as I do. Now, another great layer to this is the Fire of the Gods angle brought in by Idun's Fruit of Immortality. Once again, the Fire Moon figure is implied as carrying the Fire of the Gods, just as Nissa, Nissa is the one who can impart the fire of the gods to man. Peter is therefore not only Loki and the kidnapping uh, and the giant who is kidnapping Idun, he's also a Lucifer or Grey King figure stealing the fire from heaven at great cost to everyone. So, last detail of the story, and this might be the coolest part. After Loki helps uh, Thiazi kidnap Idun, the gods are of course wroth with him and force him to rescue Idun. Freya lends Loki her hawk, or falcon feathers, depending on the tale, and this allows Loki to now transform into a hawk or falcon uh, so that he can fly up to Thrymheim Thunderhome, which he does. And he finds the giant away, and Idun alone, and so then he transforms her into a chestnut so that he can carry her to safety. Don't ask me how he's able to do that, he just does. Now, you may recall the shade of hair that Sansa dyes her auburn red to. That's right, chestnut brown. It's mentioned on many occasions, and it really seems to clinch the Idun-Sansa parallels. So, making a prediction for A Song of Ice and Fire from the mythical parallels here, 
I'd look for some sort of Loki and or Falcon symbolism attached to whomever helps Sansa escape the veil and Peter's clutches. Now, I do think that Sansa will largely engineer her own escape, uh, but doubtless she will receive aid from someone. She's a dragon locked in ice character, and there's always some sort of symbol of the returning comet, which awakens and breaks free the dragon locked in ice. Now, to the point about her engineering her own escape, consider the ghost of High Heart seeing Sansa as a maiden in a castle made of snow, slaying a savage giant. Idun is trapped in a snow castle by a giant and needs to be rescued, but George is telling us straight up that he's going to mess with the myth a bit, and that this time it's going to be Idun cutting that mother-effing giant's head off instead. And you gotta like that. So there's actually a tiny bit more I want to say about this chapter before we bring this episode to a close, but I'm going to put in a section break here and use the last section as kind of an outro. That's actually a sentence I wrote several drafts ago. The last section is now no longer an outro. It's now a proper section. But in any case, this is the end of the section. So guys, how did you like all that Sansa stuff? Woo! Yay, Sansa. Queen of the North! Queen of the North! Queen of the North! <laughs> That's a lot of cool symbolism. And I really do want to shout out Isabel Harper once again, um, because I just really like how it's flipped around. You know, it's like Idun and Sansa are both trapped by the giant in the ice castle. Uh, but George, by showing us her slaying the giant, basically turns this myth into one of a princess that needs to be rescued into a princess cutting off the giant's head. And I think that's kind of a little more modern and cool. So I was pretty tickled about that. Yeah. I think that's one of the coolest parts about Sansa's character as well, is that she... She really does get to, and I think is going to even more clearly become a really fun inversion of the princess in the tower kind of trope. Yeah, agreed. I really want to see where her story goes because like her symbolic parallels, as you were talking about, kind of follow Danny's. Like, and so she's kind of leading us towards what maybe Danny will be. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There's a ton of Sansa Danny, uh, Sansa Danny parallels. Uh, as I've tried to bring to life here. And once we do that episode about Danny and her Greenseer symbolism, you're going to see it even more. Uh, so it's going to be fun. Nienna the Wise is asking me about my thoughts on Sansa John symbolism. Yeah, there is a lot of Sansa John parallels. I've, I sort of mentioned it a little bit uh, in that they're both dragon locked in ice features, uh, figures. And John's whole thing basically is the dragon locked in ice. Sansa is essentially a female version of John when she's locked in the ice. And I expect her awakening from the veil to also be spectacular and to have ice moon apocalypse symbolism. And uh, I'm going to get to that, but in one of the T-Wow chapters, mild spoiler alert, uh, she has the idea to create a kind of Kingsguard for Sweet Robin, which she calls the Winged Knights. And they, of course, will have other symbolism when we see them, just like uh, the Kingsguard does. So this is Sansa creating others, if you will, or Ice Moon Meteors. Um, uh, oh, uh, Painkiller Jane pipes in to say that Edun was also the wife of uh, Braggy, or Braggy, who is the god of poetry. So one of those heart-playing guys. Totally. I wanted to bring up, too, that um, Mel had brought up that 
one of the other interesting parallels with the blood orange is that that is what Arya uses to stain Sansa's dress all the way back in uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, that's true. So it's almost like she's able to take the blood orange mojo and like uh, transmute it or something, huh? And it's, it's interesting too. And then we also read the quote about the, um, you know, the melon morning star. So there's like a lot of Sansa getting pelted with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it really Poor is. Sansa. <laughs> Poor thing. Get off the stage. Boo. Boo. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be interesting to see who else gets pelted with fruit. I could think of a couple of other examples of fruit being thrown. There's one in Dorn. Um, but, but other than that, I think Sansa is going to be our uh, target of fruit tossing number one. Aww. Awesome. So, hey, guys, um, uh, Gretchen Ellis, Nienna the Wise, sent a super chat and says, can't wait to see you discuss how Arya and Sansa are two sides of the same weirwood goddess coin. Just different perspectives. Goddess of death, vengeance more strongly for Arya, and love, life bringer more strongly for Sansa. But many ancient goddesses show this kind of dual symbolism, which is not all that different from the king of summer winter duality. Whoa, dude. Yeah, um, you guys are going to see when Gretchen gets on Between Two Weirwoods that she rolls deep with the knowledge. Yes, she does. She's very impressive. And I will eventually get to this topic. Uh, Arya and Sansa and the Weirwood Goddess stuff. Um, in fact, I'll shout out Ravenous Reader, who today found a section where Arya thinks about her face as a dark pool when she's in the black, uh, House of Black and White. And this, of course, evokes the Black Pond in the Winterfell Godswood and implies Arya as like literally the face of death, the face of space, face of the stranger. And of course, Arya is basically, does have all those death goddess symbols, the Night Wolf, uh, the faceless girl. And that's another way of, of cool saying faceless girl, like her face is a black pool. It's like just a black void. That is, no that imagery is all over Arya's chapters in House of Black and White. It's not just the still black pool. She also is told to keep her face as still as stone. Um, and she thinks about standing as still as a statue. It's, it's fun and nuts how like hot and heavy George is with the death goddess imagery. With and specifically with the like stone and steel pool imagery with Arya, it's really really cool. Oh yes, and of course we talked all about that in uh, it's an Arya thing, which is weird. Goddess too, if anybody is curious to take a look. And yes, all all good comments, Maester Mary. Thank you. All right, so let's get on to our next section. In the clutches of the others. On behalf of Lady Shar, wielder of the Sacred Shard, Ice Priestess of the House of the Unsleeping, I'd like to welcome three new members of the Starry Wisdom Priesthood. Sir Aenys Frey of the Loud Water, Ridiculous Ed Tolay, the Firebeard of the Dragonglass Forge, whose eyes are like pale morning mist, and Mathar O'Moontown, Fisher of the Shining Sea. There's actually quite a lot that goes on in this uh, second chapter before Sansa gets to the Vale that we haven't talked about. And some of that I'm going to save for when we talk about the Snowcastle Lysa Flies Out the Moon Door chapter. But there are three things that I do want to highlight before we head out of here, starring with a guest appearance by the Hound, Sandor Clegane. That's right. 
Sandor definitely makes an appearance in the back half of this chapter. The first sighting comes in the form of an actual dog. It was eight long days until Liza Aaron arrived. On five of them it rained while Sansa sat bored and restless by the fire beside the old blind dog. He was too sick and toothless to walk guard with Brian anymore, and mostly all he did was sleep. But when she patted him, he whined and licked her hand, and after that, they were fast friends. So uh, we've got a dog. Sansa's made friends with an old blind dog. So what, right? Well, later that night, after the wedding, that's Lysa and uh, Peter's wedding, of course, when Sansa is going to sleep, the dog becomes a little more interesting. Sansa found Brian's old blind dog in her little alcove beneath the steps and lay down next to him. He woke and licked her face. You sad old hound, she said, ruffling his fur. Aww, sad old hound, huh? Think about the hound being too sick and toothless to walk guard anymore, and then think of how Sandor the hound has seemingly become the gravedigger at the Quiet Isle, where he has traded in his sword for a plowshare, or we might say a shovel. He's, uh, he's sort of gone silent, and he's toothless in the sense that he... He's not swinging his sword anymore, and he doesn't stand guard or fight as he's done his whole life. So, uh, yeah, kind of a similar thing there. And then the very next sentence has Marillion arriving, drunk and boorish. And that's putting it nicely. And look, you know somebody is bad when they are cruel to animals. The old dog raised his head and growled, but the singer gave him a cuff and sent him slinking off, whimpering. So there's the old sad hound. He's trying to protect Sansa, as Sandor did at King's Landing. Uh, the dog fails, but then Lothor Brun arise, uh, arrives to halt the attempted assault. Except, is it Lothor Brun? Sansa heard the soft sound of steel on leather. Singer, a rough voice said, best go if you want to sing again. The light was dim, but she saw a faint glimmer of a blade. The singer saw it, too. Find your own wench. The knife flashed, and he cried out, You cut me! I'll do worse if you don't go. And as quick as that, Marillion was gone. The other remained, looming over Sansa in the darkness. Lord Peter said to watch out for you. It was Lothar Brune's voice, she realized. Not the hound's. No, how could it be? Of course, it had to be Lothar. That night... Sansa scarcely slept at all, but tossed and turned just as she had above the Merlin King. She dreamt of Joffrey dying, but as he clawed at his throat and the blood ran down across his fingers, she saw with horror that it was her brother Rob. And she dreamed of her wedding night too, of Tyrion's eyes devouring her as she undressed. Only then he was bigger than Tyrion had any right to be. And when he climbed into the bed, his face was scarred on only one side. I'll have a song from you, he rasped. And Sansa woke and found the old blind dog beside her once again. I wish that you were lady, she said. No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. She doesn't wish she was lady. <laughs> That's not exactly what she wishes. I think the dream makes it obvious what she's wishing here. And this is basically San San Central. Uh, you know, so Sansa thinks that Lothor is Sandor, then dreams of Sandor. Then the last sentence has Sandor talking to Sansa as she wakes up, only to find the old blind dog 
almost as if Sandor had transformed into the sad old hound. And right before that, it's basically the opposite, where the hound transforms into Lothor Brune almost. So she's got this dog protector figure all around, and Sansa, uh, Sandor is just conjured all over the scene. So and then the other thing I notice is the potential other wordplay, of course. I'm sure you guys caught it too. When Marillion leaves, quote, the other remained. And that other happens to have other in his name, as Lothor without the L is Othor, or Othor, other. And say, isn't Othor the name of a Night's Watchman who was whited in a Game of Thrones? The same guy who had the moon face that filled John's world before he slashed it with a sword and then burned it? I suggested that his name, Othor, and his ice moon face makes him representative of the others in general, and I must make the same conclusion about Lothor Brune here. He appears and cuts Marillion, drawing blood, and I'm reminded of the others bloodying their swords on Sir Waymar here. Marillion is a Baelish bard Night's King figure, in parallel to Peter, as I mentioned earlier, and so what we have here is Lothor Brune essentially being cast as the good other, the eldritch snowbeard, blood of the other Stark figure, who's also overlaps with the Hellhound and, Sans- and Sandor. So you could almost uh, imply a kind of a blood magic ritual here, where Lothor the other needs the blood of Night's King Baelish Bard, uh, Marillion, to come alive, if you will. Now, flashing back to uh, Dantos' death scene, we find more other wordplay for Lothor, which some of you noticed when we read it the first time. After Lothor, the reward. Lothor Brune dipped his torch. Three men stepped to the gunwale, raised crossbows, fired. One bolt took Dantos in the chest as he looked up, punching through the left crown on his surcoat. The others ripped into his throat and belly. Sounds almost a bit like the prologue of A Game of Thrones again, doesn't it? With the others ripping into the poor Sir Waymar. Lothor commands the others here, which again fits his symbolism. So finally, Lothor's nickname is Lothor Apple Eater, ah, for his capturing or killing of three fossaways during the Battle of the Blackwater. But considering Sansa as Idun, Lothor the Apple Eater might imply the others as immortal in some sense, having eaten the apples of immortality. Ice preserves, after all. Uh, or it could be implying Lothor as playing a reanimated good other Eldric figure who also does seem to be a green zombie, with the apples being symbolic of him being resurrected because the zombies seem to be immortal once they're raised until they're burned or hacked to pieces. Um, so I kind of favor the former in that Lothor is implied as obtaining the fiery apples of the gods, but then has become a frozen fire of the gods figure. Uh, Sandor himself, you know, he deserves an entire essay, but it should be clear at a glance that he is also a fire and ice, Azor High Reborn, hellhound figure who very much overlaps with the good other archetype. That's why Sandor is almost like an honorary Stark with his gray eyes uh, and his Stark-like looks. And I've talked about, obviously, the fact that the Stark direwolves are the same thing as hellhounds. So that's why Sandor is basically protecting Starks throughout his whole arc, because he essentially is an honorary in, in, a Stark, at least in archetype uh, terms. So after, I mean, basically after Sandor kills Micah the Butcher's Boy, all he does the whole rest of the story is protect Starks, either Arya or Sansa. Uh, so much so that Sansa actually imagines... Sandor as her mysterious protector when it's actually Lothor coming to her aid. 
All right, so there is your Sandor appearance, channeled through Lothor Brun and the blind old dog. So now let's let Lysa, the Night's Queen, make her appearance. Her Night's Queen symbolism comes across very clearly when she arrives at the Fingers to meet Peter. Peter knelt to kiss her fingers. The King's small council commanded me to woo you and win you, my lady. Do you think you might have me for your lord and husband? Lady Lysa pooched her lips and pulled him up to plant a kiss on his cheek. Oh, mayhaps I could be persuaded, she giggled. Have you brought gifts to melt my heart? The king's peace. Oh, poo the peace. What else have you brought me? My daughter. Little finger beckoned Sansa forward with a hand. My lady, allow me to present to you Elaine Stone. Liza Aaron did not seem greatly pleased to see her. Sansa did a deep curtsy, her head bowed. A bastard, she heard her aunt say. Peter, have you been wicked? Who was her mother? The wench is dead. I'd hope to take Elaine to the Erie. What am I to do with her there? I have a few notions, said Lord Peter. But just now I am more interested in what I might do with you, my lady. All the sternness melted off her aunt's round pink face. And for a moment, Sansa thought Liza Aaron was about to cry. That was a total, I'm more interested in what I might do with you, my lady. (laughs) So starting with Lysa, the Ice Queen, we see that there are two mentions of her melting here. And of course, that implies her as made of ice. Indeed, when the sternness melts off her face, Sansa thinks that she's going to cry. And this directly implies the tears of Lysa as the meltwater runoff from the melting Ice Queen. It's just like the melting wall being seen as weeping. Lysa is melting and about to weep. So we'll see a ton more of this in her death scene, of course, where she cries and speaks of the tears of Lys right before getting thrown out of the moon door like a falling ice moon meteor, which is what the icy tears symbolize. So ice tears also symbolize the others, as we know, and while speaking of the Vale Lords who are courting her, Lysa mentions the uber-annoying Bronzion Royce, and then says, And the others are all swarm around me. Now, of course, they do. You're the Night's Queen, Lysa. The Queen Bee of the Icy Honeycomb, around whom the others swarm like ice bees. Now, there's a nasty thought. Probably worse than ice spiders when you think about it. Ice bees? No thanks. Kidding aside, think of all the frozen honeycomb symbolism that we've seen so far. Uh, To get honey, you need to have bees, and the others are those frozen bees, if you will. They certainly swarm and sting. So, second observation, Lysa is looking for Peter to melt her heart, and it is, of course, Peter who melts the sternness off of her uh, a moment later, and who also makes her cry in her death scene, for that matter. This implies Peter, the Night's King, giving his fire to Lysa and melting her which fits my hypothesis that it was night, that uh, Night's King was an Azor High person with the fiery blood of the dragon in his veins. This is paralleled in Marillion's advance on Sansa, which began with the line, The night is chill and wet. Let me warm you. Sorry to make that so creepy, but it is a creepy line, so it deserves all the creep factor I could give it, and that was that. And then it continues uh, with this line. I never get drunk. Mead only makes me merry. I am on fire. You are on fire, Mary. Mm. Eh, 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 eh. That was it. That was the merry line. 
Mead only makes Mary Mary. That and your name, Mary. But uh, in any case, Marillion is on fire, just like Peter the fiery titan's head. And they're melting the hearts of the ice queens. They're very parallel scenes. So we've got uh, the Baelish one and the bard, and they're both trying to warm up these cold women. Marillion puts his greasy, dirty, low-life, filthy hand on Sansa's thigh. How dare he? And then says, and you as well, implying Sansa as being on fire for him. But of course, she is not. In any case, we will revisit some of this in the next episode. But I wanted to make the point about Peter and Marillion as fiery men trying to melt ice queens. So last point, and then we'll, uh, we'll be done. As I mentioned, the fingers seem to be analogous to the eerie, uh, or you could say that they serve as an extension of the eerie. This gives me a great excuse to mention an obscure bit of mythical astronomy that I found in the world of ice and fire, which is full of weird little mythical astronomy tales like this, which is how I know George wrote most of it. In any case, this is concerning two ancient first men heroes of the fingers. Dwyan Shell and John Brightstone, both of whom claim the title King of the Fingers, went so far as to pay Andal warlords to cross the sea, each thinking to use their swords against the other. Instead, the warlords turned upon their hosts. Within a year, Brightstone had been taken, tortured and beheaded, and Shell roasted alive inside his wooden long haul. An Andal knight named Corwin Corbray took the daughter of the former for his bride and the wife of the latter for his bed warmer and claimed the fingers for his own, though Corbray, unlike many of his fellows, never named himself a king, preferring the more modest style of Lord of the Five Fingers. Ah, uh, yes, this is pretty good stuff. So first off, Diwen Shell and John Brightstone. Diwen and John are Night's Watch Rangers, of course, and good friends who are locked in the ice of the wall. And what do you call a bright stone inside of a shell? Well, some kind of meteor locked in an ice moon, of course. John is the dragon locked in ice person, so it's logical to see John Brightstone as being inside the Daiwan shell. And the shell is, of course, Daiwan shell, and he's burned alive in his wooden long haul, which reminds us that Daiwan, the Night's Watch Ranger, has wooden teeth. Burning in a wooden building, of course, implies someone going into the weirwood net, as Azor High did. Think of Dantos on the burning boat. Uh, it also implies uh, waking in fire from the ice moon, like the moon-faced Othor when he burned. And also like the King of Winter Wicker Man is supposed to burn to bring the spring. Now, I'm not sure what the meaning is of Corwin Corbray taking the daughters of each slain lorn to bed, but it sounds kind of like he, it's implying him as unifying two oppositional things. Perhaps we can speculate about this in the follow-up Q&A livestream next week. Perhaps it could refer to uh, forging a sword from two different kinds of moon meteors or something like that. I don't know. Because the bright stone in the center would be the piece of fire moon and the shell would be like, you know, the piece of ice moon that was dawn. We've got the last hero's sword breaking, and then we've got him reappearing with dragon steel. So there's definitely an implication of reforging a broken sword going on. There's lots of broken sword symbolism with the titan's head and the last hero. So you can see where that is going. But that is a bit of a topic for another time. So the idea of John Brightstone living at the fingers also has parallels with the idea of Sansa as a lane stone living at the fingers. 
We mentioned that Peter says the fingers are a great place to live if you're a stone or bright stone, uh, but that Sansa is a stone. And along those same lines, when Sansa gets to the fingers, she compares it to being held prisoner at the Red Keep and thinks, hey, maybe she could make a home here at the fingers. Maybe it's not that bad. Then during their confrontation in the High Hall, Lysa threatens to send Sansa back to the fingers to live. So there's many implications of Sansa Stone or Elaine Stone living at the fingers, just like John Brightstone lived at the fingers. So we can say that stones live at the fingers. Or they symbolically die and rest there. Or they even really die and rest there, as John Brightstone did. And if the fingers are parallel to the Eyrie as an ice moon place, then we think of the giant's lance and all the ice moon meteor shower symbolism. Then we look back at the fingers again, and we see a giant, truly giant hand holding thousands of cold stones. And one Elaine stone, who may still be fiery Sansa Stark underneath. Sansa Stark is indeed in the clutches of an ice giant, or perhaps the giant hands of the others. Check out this amazing scene from the High Hall of the Eyrie. The High Hall had been closed since Lady Lysa's fall, and it gave Sansa a chill to enter it again. The hall was long and grand and beautiful, she supposed, but she did not like it there. It was a pale, cold place at the best of times. The slender pillars looked like finger bones, and the blue veins in the white marble brought to mind the veins in an old crone's legs. Though 50 silver sconces lined the walls, less than a dozen torches had been lit, so shadows danced upon the floors and pooled in every corner. Their footsteps echoed off the marble, and Sansa could hear the wind rattling the moon door. I must not look at it, she told herself or else I'll start to shake as badly as Robert. Sorry, I was just uh, jamming there with a couple people in the chat. Um, Mijikam says, pointed out that Corwin Corbray, taking the daughter of Dywin Shell and John Brightstone, makes him a uh, figure with two wives. Uh, and, of course, the Corbrays carry, uh, now anyways, they carry the Valerian steel sword, uh, heart Eater. Not Heart Eater. What's it called? Um, it's uh, Lady Forlorn. That's it. Lady Forlorn. Thank you. And when uh, Lynn Corbray talks about Lady coming out and being thirsty for a drink, so you get the blood-drinking sword idea. It's Valerian Steel. So, uh, And then, of course, the Corbray sigil is the three black ravens holding the three hearts on a white field, which I connected to the dragon-locked in ice symbol and blood raven uh, because it's a raven carrying a bloody heart. So, uh, yeah, so he's got two wives. Very cool, very cool. Uh, so, Maester Mary just read a quote, completely forgot what it was. Oh, yes, it was the bone white. Uh, yeah, so basically, the pillars in the high hall, which we know have the white marble veined with blue, are now described as finger bones. And as pale as, uh, what does it say, bone white? Then it says, uh, yeah, okay, so. We've got blue-veined marble pillars that are now like finger bones. And a moment later, there's a line about the long blue carpet that ran between the rows of bone-white pillars. So Martin really seems to want to call our attention to this. First, he's telling us that they are veined with blue, like blue blood. And then he tells us to think of finger bones and the notorious bone-white phrase. And here we'll pull another famous quote. Go ahead, Mr. Mary. When he opened his eyes, the other's armor was running down its legs in rivulets as pale blue blood 
hissed and steamed around the black dragonglass dagger in its throat. It reached down with two bone-white hands to pull out the knife, but where its fingers touched the obsidian, they smoked. Sam rolled onto his side, eyes wide as the other shrank and puddled, dissolving away. In 20 heartbeats, its flesh was gone, swirling away into a fine white mist. Beneath were bones like milk glass, pale and shiny, and they were melting too. There you go. The others have bone-white hands, just like the bone-white finger-bone columns at the Eyrie. The others have blue blood, just like the columns and the stone of the Eyrie. In other words, Sansa is indeed standing in the hands of the others, with their icy fingers closing all around her. No wonder that hall is so cold. This is parallel to the idea of her living at the fingers, where she is, again, inside huge, cold hands. Bone-white stone columns also evoke the ribs of Naga, the sea dragon, which appeared to be petrified weirwood turned to pale stone, and compared to giant trees, which are bone-white. So it's implied that a uh, it's also implied rather that a weirwood throne once sat in the Grey King's Hall, just as a weirwood throne sits in the High Hall of the Eyrie, between those bone white stone columns. So we're just going to have to come back to that topic now, won't we? And that'll be when we do the full uh, Sansa Snowcastle chapter. Of course, we'll basically go through that entire chapter, and we'll have to talk about the weirwood throne, which obviously is a very significant symbol. And Aziz Elduri adds that uh, Lady Forlorn is no match for the new and improved model, which is Lady Five Lorn. Thanks, Aziz. Boom. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So, in any case, going back to the previous quote, the chilly high hall has, we'll notice that it's got a fewer than a dozen torches lit, so the shadows danced and pooled. Dancing shadows is pretty obvious others talk, since they are the shadows that dance with Sir Waymar, and we will eventually talk about Patchface and his shadows come to dance, my lord, rhymes soon. Uh, Shadows that turn into pools, and yes, I'm going to have a lot of fun reading all the Patchface lines, you bet. Uh, In any case, shadows that turn into pools, uh, that is Sir Puddles once again, as the other who Sam stabs and melts is commonly known. It's a white shadow that turned into a puddle, or a pool. Once again, we see how unified Martin's symbolism is here. The pooling shadows work together with the blue blood and the bone-white fingers to collectively imply the presence of the others. It's like fourfold symbolic verification, the kind of stuff I always look for. So, now what about the uh, dragon glass that melts the other in Sam's scene? Is there an analog for that? Here in the High Hall of the Eyrie, by chance? Well, that would be Sansa. And here I will give the hat tip to Maester Mary for this find. Remember that when Lysa asked Peter, or sorry, remember when Lysa asked Peter, what had she brought him, or brought her to melt her heart? And he said, the king's peace. And she wasn't impressed. And then, then he said, and my daughter Elaine. But the thing is, Elaine, aka Sansa, is the king's peace, P-I-E-C-E, as in chess piece. Don't forget at the end of the previous chapter, uh, that's the one that ends with everyone on board the Merlin King, and Peter gives that little speech about Sansa, or to Sansa, rather, about players and pieces, and about everyone starts out as a piece, and Cer- Cersei thinks she's a player, but she's really a piece, 
yada, yada, yada. So giving a shout out to my friends at Pawn to Player blog, which is a place where you can find all things Sansa and much more. Sansa's arc can indeed be summarized as Pawn to Player. And it flows from this conversation with Peter uh, about Sansa's obvious trajectory towards power and leadership. So Sansa is the king's piece. First she was the pawn of Joffrey, and now she's the pawn of Peter the Merlin King and the symbolic Night's King. In the mythical astronomy sense, she's also a piece of the fire moon meteor, a piece of the fire moon, which is a fire moon meteor, that enters the ice moon. And when the fire moon meteor wakes, it will indeed melt the ice moon. So, what did Peter bring to melt Lysa's icy heart? The king's piece, Sansa, who is a burnt piece of the fire moon. And I'll also point out that fire moon meteors are often depicted, or sometimes depicted, as dragon glass. And Sansa parallels John as the dragon locked in ice. And of course, dragon glass is John's symbol, which is very good for melting ice. So... Uh, you could think of dragon glass as the bright stone when it is in the form of a lit glass candle as well. So, yeah, Sansa would be the analog to the dragon glass that melts the ice. So what we're seeing at the Eyrie with Sansa and Lysa appears to be some sort of ice queen, like, like basically a new ice queen supplanting the old one. Or perhaps you might say that dead Nissa Nissa or Nissa Nissa's ghost is taking over the ice moon and evicting the original night's queen. This matches the mythical astronomy of my theory about the dawn meteor, which is that it was a piece of the ice moon, which was cracked off when the original fire moon meteor hit the ice moon and became the dragon locked in ice. So it's like, see this ice moon, fire moon meteor comes in, and it kicks out a little piece of ice, which is like Lysa being kicked out of the veil when Sansa comes there. And indeed, almost as soon as Peter brings the dead Nissa Nissa figure of Sansa to the Eyrie, Lysa ends up falling out the moon door like a melting tear, weeping all the way. An icy moon maiden, icy moon maiden, rather, not a midden. There's some cesspool humor for you, unintentional. An icy moon maiden flying out the moon door and falling from the sky is pretty clear ice moon meteor symbolism, if anything is, right? And once again, this happens as a direct result of a fire moon remnant impacting the eerie, just as I've speculated all the way back in my very first draft, more than three years ago. That's right, guys, three years ago. I was talking about Dawn as an ice moon meteor kicked out of the ice moon. So pretty cool to find uh, symbolism supporting that. So in any case, this supplanting idea will be a major topic of the next episode or two. And that's where we're going to try to drill down on the relationship between deadness and Nyssa and Night's Queen. And what exactly happens inside the ice moon part of the underworld? We'll also go deeper on the idea of the weirwood net acting as a sort of portal from fire to ice. And we'll talk about the weirwoods as a bridge. Bridge between the uh, fire and ice realms or between the two moons. And this is, of course, all about the cosmic river and the frozen pond and squishers and patch face and all the aquatic symbolism. It's going to be the most magical, this, this uh, I should say that the Signs and Portals series, rather, is going to be the most magical and metaphysical series yet, and we will be building on all of the prior episodes of Mythical Astronomy, and we'll be tying in the crucial triumvirate of Azor High and Dragons, Green Seers and Weirwoods, and others, and Ice Magic. So, thanks for joining me, guys, and I will see you next time. Da, 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 da.
Ooh, we made it. We made it. Ooh, pretty old town. Clapping. Three hours, and we've got 133 viewers. Y'all are crazy. We've had the same, like, 130 to 140 people basically the entire time, uh, and that just blows me away, guys. I'm sitting in my basement, or standing in my basement, since I have a standing desk, and I'm talking about Song of Ice and Fire with a couple of my friends on YouTube, and all y'all are interested for three hours. That's just... It's just awesome. It makes me feel good, and it makes up for all the YouTube bullshit and all that. So, thank you guys, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I did, for sure. <laughs> me three. Me sure they did. Thank you, Sandra. I am honored, as always, by your animations. And of course, sandrixian.com is where you can find cool Sandrixian t shirt and prints and pins and stickers and all kinds of cool crap. We are still working on getting mythical astronomy t shirts. Uh, on sandrixian.com, but that is happening. And uh, if you're one of those few patrons who has promised a t-shirt and still hasn't gotten one, we haven't forgotten about you. We got your address and information, and we will send you a t-shirt when we make more. It is happening. So there you go. Hand of the Dragon, thank you. Coming through for everyone. So with that, guys, thank you very much for coming. And I will see you next Sunday, same time, same bat channel. And we'll be doing live Q&A and just doing a little more free-for-all talk about all this stuff. You can bring up anything you want. Send me questions about Sansa. And I'll play a little bass for y'all next week. So thanks, everybody. And sign off.